Well, that's probably one of the greatest tracks out there. And who did ask for this track? It's Steve Baker in my shed. How are you, buddy? Yeah, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me on, Renaz. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad to have you here. It's exciting. So, what has it been? Two, about a month since it's been we about met? a month, yeah. We met in uh, Spain skydiving. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. It was great. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was great. And there was plenty of comedy. Plenty of showing off, lots of fun. It was brilliant. It was a wonderful, wonderful break. I think skydiving is one of those places when you just meet those light-minded people and then uh, even they come from like very serious backgrounds, like someone like you. Um, and, uh, but when you jump out of the plane, you become this like, you release that inner child and you just have fun. It's such a brilliant way to have fun and to level and to just get on with anybody. And that's what I love about it is no one cares that you're an MP or, mm, or whatever. Mm, mm. You're just there to skydive. And the best part for me was like, because I don't even un- understand what MP means. I mean, in, <laughs> in the sense of like, even living back home in Latvia, I never really t- took interest in politics. And then especially moving to UK, there's already so many things to think about. Only thing I know about politics is Boris Bikes. That's as far as I Boris can go. Boris Bikes, yeah, he's a great <laughs> communist bicycle scheme. Yeah, so it's Member of Parliament. I'm in the House of Commons where I'm elected and we're there to make laws, to hold the government to account, to represent people's problems, to try and get sort of restitution. A police superintendent once said to me, um, society's a pressure cooker and you're the safety release valve. Ooh. And that was a really good way of thinking about it because... That's a pretty cool analogy, yeah. Yeah, having done this for 12 years, I do see that people pour out all their troubles and difficulties and rage at someone. They need to right. pour it at someone. And it's very often their member of parliament. And I think um, understanding the role as the safety valve on the pressure cooker of society is uh, quite a good way to get through the difficult mm. days. I looked a little bit about your uh, background yesterday. and so, t- so you've been in politics now for 12 years, did yeah. you say? Yeah. And before that... Tell me about that. Well, I was a software engineer immediately before that, and I started off as a Royal Air Force engineer officer on fast jets. So how did you get in that? Uh, well, it's from when I was a kid, I loved aeroplanes as an air cadet, and um, that was you know incredible uh, experience as a kid. You know, lots of shooting, some flying. Um, it was good. Um, interested in science and technology, so engineering, cadetship seems natural. Did aerospace systems engineering at university, became a chartered uh, engineer working on airworthiness of fast jets. And um, then the dot-com boom happened, and I wanted to work in defence intelligence and trials and avionics and weapons, and the Air Force said, we want you to do engines. Big, heavy thing, turns round and round, fatigue, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid, a bit boring. I thought, well, I can either sit here in this big open-plan office working on something I'm not interested in, or I can go and get involved in the dot-com boom. So that's what I tried to do, MSc in computer science, business software, fascinating stuff. Ended up working at Lehman Brothers of all places, Mm. which was a great asset at the beginning and a great liability at the end. And then I was so, so very fed up with politics and politicians. (laughs) I was. I was (laughs) just completely fed up with it. I should should go in politics. (laughs) I I thought I must be capable of doing a better job. So I thought, emigrate, moan or stand. Mm -hmm. I'm not sitting at home moaning. Let's get off my ass going to try and do something. So uh, two and a half years later, I was elected to Parliament with no previous political experience and in some senses, the rest literally is history. Done some mm. big things. And it's been 12 years now. So how is it like, comparingly, when you started maybe in the middle and now? So the start, we had a very stable government because it was a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. So in the UK, you ideally, you have a government with a single political party based on their manifesto. 
But we, David Cameron, George Osborne, t- took the decision to have a coalition with the Liberal Democrats to have a big majority t- so they could always get their vote through. So a very, very stable government, uh, but you couldn't get anything through unless the Liberal Democrats agreed. Mm-hmm. That was the way it worked. So five years of trying to balance the books and so on, and we thought that was tricky. And then all hell broke loose from 2016. We had the EU referendum. EU referendum. And I was closely involved in that and in leaving the EU. And I'm afraid it's been really tumultuous, historic times. That's probably the only subject I can talk about and maybe give a little bit of my idea. Go on, go on, tell me. (laughs) Are you fed up with Brexit? (laughs) To be honest, like, it's, it's for me, it's, it's, it's almost like it's better for me. Yeah. Because, like, even though I'm not a citizen in this country, that is uh, such a relief to hear that it's better for you. I'm so glad I came on this podcast. No, no. In, in Let's sense, this bit out and put it everywhere. No, check this out. So I remember a friend of mine, uh, she was saying about, like, oh, there's going to be Brexit happening, blah, blah, blah. She went and uh, got this uh, these lawyers, and she got sorted out her permanent residency. So she paid, I don't know, how much money, took her how much time. And then as soon as the Brexit, right before Brexit happened, I don't know if you know about this, very quickly uh, there's this app was going out and saying anyone who's been here longer than five years, you can very quickly get your settled status. Yeah. And I'm not kidding you. Okay, this is uh, very interesting information. I was sitting in my toilet and filled out that information and I got my settled status like literally in 10 minutes. I'm so happy to hear that. (laughs) You know why? Because I was a Brexit minister at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was a minister responsible for part of how we left the EU, and I'm very, very pleased that that worked well. I went to, I even chaired some of the meetings. Yes, thank you, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I even chaired some of the meetings within government that made some of this stuff happen. So, um, yeah, I'm really pleased and proud that that worked well for you. Because that was so quick, and someone who hasn't been there longer than five years... So there would be like three or four years. They still would get a settled status, but it's different. Uh, It's... um it's like settled status, we had uh, pre-settled status. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. the one. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as five years hit, they get the settled status. And settled status means that, like, I literally can go away up to, like, five years or something and still come back. I'm not really that's sure. A, I forget. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't like to give the advice but, but, on that. But it was just, like, a very, you know, lenient, like, it's People like easy. me wanted it to work for you. You yeah. know, this was one of the most painful things about the referendum is the sense was created that people mm. weren't welcome. Well, that was never true. People were always welcome. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm so happy to hear that it worked well Yeah, I you. did hear a lot of people, again, maybe not really getting into it, not understanding exactly what's happening. Some people are like, oh, yeah, British, like, UK doesn't want us. That's it. We're leaving. We're going it's back so to... so untrue. And yeah. it was uh, really, really painful to hear that. You know, I have uh, quite a lot of Polish and Romanian people in Wickham. Mm-hmm. And um, they are extremely welcome. I mean... We've got an amazingly diverse community in Wickham. About one in six of my voters are British Asians, which uh, overwhelmingly means Kashmiris. Uh, I've got the biggest population from St Vincent and the Grenadines outside the islands. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing, wonderful, diverse community. And I'm really proud of the way people get on. So um, somebody like... So I'm a Conservative because I'm an old Liberal. Mm. You know, I believe in freedom. Hence a T-shirt. Hey! Oh, sorry. <laughs> was it the wrong button? Wrong button. <laughs> <laughs> wrong button. <laughs> Andrew Neil should have this. Um, <laughs> like in very serious, like pol- political <laughs> debate. <laughs> Come on, let's have that one. Wait, wait. Hey, Yay. we have that one. We sh- wait, and then we have this one. So now we're going to talk about serious stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is so needed on like GB News or Sky News or something. <laughs> it's like a little kid with buttons here you it's go. a very very good idea that should appear in every studio right now yeah somewhere in the parliament when someone says try to say come across with a point you just go 
<laughs> and what do you guys think? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, that's a good idea. But yeah, on the serious stuff, yeah, we just wanted people to be welcome to mm-hmm. stay. You know, mm-hmm. uh, leaving the EU is about the structure of power in the world and and our capacity to make our own laws. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's unfortunate that it was cast as something else, but. Um, you know, I'm pleased that we mostly seem to have moved past it. So Liz Truss, who sh- looks likely at the moment to win the Conservative le- leadership election mm-hmm. and become Prime Minister, she voted Remain, she campaigned Remain, but she's been on the journey the whole country needs to be on, which is to say whether you voted Leave or Remain, actually now it's yeah, about yeah, yeah. trying to just move beyond it and move It was together. interesting, like, I just saw there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of, like, people just not really again, doing their homework and, and trying to understand what exactly is happening. So I remember there was this uh, radio show, I forgot this uh, uh, host who, he's he was very openly just talking like to people, just call me in, ask me any questions and we can discuss this. You're pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you know who I'm talking about. So there was this one older gentleman calling from up north and calling and saying, oh, the reason I voted for Brexit is because this mall or whatever, this place where I, I used to go all my life, now I just can't go because there's so many black people. It's a terrible thing to say. It's just exactly. Terrible. But then he's like, "So what's that to but, do but, with exactly? <laughs> where do you think those black people come from? From Romania? From Bulgaria? From Latvia? From yeah. mm-hmm. no, they come from where is Africa or Middle East? Like, and that's nothing to do with Brexit. And then someone who has that idea, well, before I'm going to uh, vote uh, uh, pro Brexit, then this is going to stop. Well, first of all, it's not like do your research, do something about it." It's a, it, it's really unfortunate. There are always going to be hateful people in the world um, and people who are not very well informed. I'd try mm. to speak kindly of anyone. Uh, but it's happened on both sides, you know, because um, unfortunately people like that who've witnessed really un, you know, racism mm. um, have allowed people who are arrogant and condescending on the other side of the argument, the worst elements of the Remain side, to suggest that everybody wants to leave the EU as a racist, and that that was really poisonous and painful. Mm. I mean, at one point, I was described as worse than a Nazi by um, no, Dave, yeah, David Lammy, Labour front bencher, wow. said that the European Research Group, which I uh, uh, chaired, was worse than Nazis. And then when he was challenged on it, he doubled down on it. Now, this is a man who I see occasionally in Parliament. He's a Christian brother, yeah, and I've seen him in the green room, ready to go on like the Peston program, and he's always absolutely perfectly charming to me he clearly does not really believe that we're worse than nazis but um it played to an audience i guess so um i forgive him but it's not a helpful way to conduct politics because there will have been people who listened to him say that and took it seriously Mm. and that's just tragic so the challenge now is to just be realistic about the country we live in this is a very open and tolerant country in a Mm. way that you know far beyond most and yeah there are some racists in it but they don't define us, and we call them out, and we deal with them. Oh, well, it's always going to be some, you know, idiots in the crowd. You know, there's, there there's nothing always going to be idiots it. in the crowd. I it's like ju- that. Just the way it is. And like, listen, for me was um, I moved. I lived in Canada for three and a half years before I moved to London yeah. to UK. Yeah. So for before that, I lived in Latvia. Then I lived a little bit in Norway. I, I got my master's degree there in a business. And then, uh, and then uh, I was just like, "Is this it? This is my life in kind of Latvia." And then I was like, then I moved to Canada. And uh, after moving from Canada to London, it was a little bit like a culture shock in the sense that it's just much faster. There's so many more people from all over the place. Yeah. 
but it was easier for me to relate because it's a more like a European vibe, European jokes, European sarcasm, mm -hmm. which Canadians unfortunately lack. They're yeah. just so nice all the time. <laughs> they oh are God. so nice yeah, all the time. Yeah, to the point where you're like, as a European, you're just like, come on, man, give me some salt. Like, come on, something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're just like, oh, it's okay. Are you okay, Renard? Um, so, and yeah, when I moved to London, I, I really enjoyed that uh, cosmopolitan concept. And anywhere you go, there's going to be Brits, maybe 30%. But you have you have a very international life, don't you? I mean, you were telling me about going to Bali. Yeah, yeah well, I've, I've been going back and forth to Bali now for the last two years. Is it two years almost? Yeah, so the first time I went there, idea was to go for three weeks, just like Christmas and holidays, end up being seven months, start doing stand-up, start doing podcast. There you go. This yeah, is the podcast. Right. And um, and then I was like, okay, this is a pretty cool thing. So I could go to UK, do my stunt work, make some money, and then go back to Bali. And so that's what I'm doing. Now. So you're MBA qualified. Yeah. Stunt work. Yeah. Stand up comedy. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. How do we swap lives? This sounds great. Oh, in between there was stripping as well. <laughs> <laughs> stripping. <laughs> I don't think. Yes. Yes. There was stripping. I don't think I'll get away with the stripping. So tell me, Renaz, this is a question I've always wanted to ask an interviewer. Tell me, Renaz, how did you get into the stripping? Well, uh, Steve, thank you for asking this uh, question. Um, <laughs> well, the truth was, basically, I had two choices, whether go back to Latvia or do stripping. Uh, the reason was... Latvia like, can't be that bad. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, the idea was, like, after two years of living in, in, in Canada, I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Latvia. That's it. So I came back to Latvia, and it was this massive culture shock, and I'm just seeing, like, all these kind of, oh, Latvians going to love me for this, but there's, like, these miserable people just walking around, being hating their life, always complaining. And it was also bad timing, because I came back in the spring, where, like, snow is melting, it's, like, shitty weather. Yeah, but... Yeah, and then I was like, okay, I can't do this. I just literally came back from sunny Saskatoon. They even call it sunny, <laughs> sunny Saskatoon. Saskatoon. Yeah, where everyone no is just idea. happy. Everyone just loved their lives. And I was doing things like door-to-door -door sales. Like people would let me in their house and just talk to them and, and give their like cookies, coffee and all that. It's just like, just, just totally different uh, culture. And then in a week, being in Latvia, I said, that's it, I'm going back. Whatever it takes, I'm going back. It wasn't at that time we didn't thought about, oh, even it's stripping, I'm going back. Yeah. But then I, I went back to, to Canada. I still had a little bit of my uh, visa left for about like uh, two months. And the only thing that I could figure out how to stay in Canada was to become a student. So I enrolled in uh, journalism. Uh, st I started studying in Simon Fraser's University in Vancouver and uh, start studying. And then I'm like, okay, I need $6,000 per semester. And I had maybe like two grand left from my savings. I was like, okay, what do I do? So I could try to ask like help to my sister or not from my parents. But me and my sister were not getting along. So I would never ask that. And I was like, you know what? There was this party I went last year. Someone said, you're a good dancer because dancing is my background. And as, as a, since I was a kid, I was dancing. And he said like... What kind of dancing? Uh, I used to do ballroom dancing. I used to do folk dancing. And I used to be in Latvian team hip hop. Amazing. So I used to compete in like uh, national, uh, international level. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so this guy noticed me dancing. He's like, would you like to be a dancer in our club? He didn't say what club. He didn't say any <laughs> of that. And I was like, sure. Yeah. And then I came and that's like one of the biggest gay clubs in Canada. Yeah. So I worked, started working as a go-go dancer in a gay club first. And then uh, so some money was coming in. It was okay. But I knew that I'm not going to make the, 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 the tuition fee. I'm really hoping that my members in Wickham Conservative <laughs> Association watch this podcast now. Let's give, have a, give that a cheer. Yes, because they're going to so love that you danced in as a go-go dancer. Yeah, but the, th club. the thing is, it's 10 years ago. And ne never did harm to anyone. It right. was my choice. 
It was me getting out of my comfort zone. And when I'm 90 years old, I'm going to be on bed and I say, I dance in little shorts in front of all these men, you know. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Exactly. I, I think it's a thing to be proud of. I wish I had the physique to do it. You know, I could take a little time out from Parliament to do some go-go <laughs> dancing. It doesn't seem very likely. I could give you some addresses in, in Soho. In no, London. I don't think we'll stop there. We'll stop there. There's only so far I can go. I have got to get. I have got to get re-elected. Yeah, there you go. Um, so it's just just my story. And uh, and then yeah, I got approached also by a stripping uh, company, whatever. And they they told me it's much more money. And I was like, okay, again, like go back to Latvia and, and not con- uh, kind of pursue your dreams because at the time I want to stay in Canada, get a permanent residence and all that, and or just do stripping. I was like, let's do it. So you said a moment ago it didn't do anybody any harm. Did you you really feel that it didn't do anybody any harm? Well, some I probably broke many hearts. You probably <laughs> broke many hearts. Yeah, you probably broke many hearts. But you know, this is one of the things that comes up in politics sometimes um, when people talk about women. It's usually talking about women in various industries mm. and um, suggesting they're being exploited. I mean, that's un- unfortunate. It's a fact that some people are trafficked into sex work, mm. but uh, you di- it sounds like you didn't. There's absolutely no trace or hint of anything like that in where you were. Listen, like, in the, when I look at it, it's, in the end of the day, it's entertaining industry. Like, to see someone uh, doing a stripping dance, because, like, those clubs, uh, nice, clean, everything prepared. And when I moved to UK, I worked uh, for a company called the Dream Boys for two years. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> so that that's anyone who watches that, they know that. And But that show was proper, like, uh, we even had one guy, remember, he moved from um, Broadway dancing to, uh, to Dream Boys. Money was more, and it was less work. And he used to work for things like uh, Lion King and, like, these big shows. Yeah. And he just said, like, you guys make way more money. Um, and the, the reason for it, just for people to understand, is that it was very difficult to find a good dancer in a good shape. Yeah. So we're, there was usually dancers are quite skinny, all that, oh, and they're so amazing you dancers. Want, but you want muscly But dancers. they needed a bit of both. Yeah. And we had a combination. We had some guys who couldn't dance for shit, and mm-hmm. uh, we trained them for months and months to get that little choreo together. That's so interesting. And you're a gymnast as well. Um, well, that's the funny thing. I got into gymnastics when I moved to UK. So I'm 38 years old now, and I got into gymnastics when I was 30. When I was 30, like 30, wow. 29, yeah. That's so it's quite very something, like, isn't it? It was very interesting because, like, growing up in a very small town back in Latvia, we didn't have any, like, gymnastics places, nothing like that. We had football, basketball, volleyball, and all the dancing, what we had in a little town. But I think because I was doing all those sports, it actually really helped me to be easier and quicker to pick up other other sports. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm pretty much my build is perfect for gymnastics. When I started gymnastics, I could do Iron Cross after like two years of training. What's Iron Cross? Iron Cross is like, I will show that here, yeah. but it's like when you do uh, on two rings, you hold your body oh, like this, yeah, yeah. like cross. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that yeah. kind of Amazing. stuff. Amazing. Yeah. And that works, so that supports your stunt work, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was hilarious. When I was in gymnastics, I was doing my pole acrobatics. So I think I showed you that before. Oh yeah, the back standing backflip, which yeah, is amazing. Yeah, yeah. That'd be so useful in the House of Commons. <laughs> after you, you, when you know you stand there as tellers, and you win a vote, it would be great to go <laughs> standing back. That's, that should be your thing. Yeah. I, I will teach you. Come come to gymnastics. And um, and yeah, so I was in uh, in East London gymnastics training there. And I noticed some guys are keep doing certain like exercise and they're really bad at it. And I came over, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're training for British Stunt Register to qualify. So we need to do learn these elements. And I already could do them easy. And I was like, really? And uh, what else do you need? And then I found out about the, all the qualifications you need. And then yeah. I was like, let's do it. So you were telling me that when we were skydiving, that older stuntmen are needed. Uh, yeah, and you said like, that's your dream to be a stuntman. Yeah, somebody said it to me when I was a software engineer. I was in this startup company. I was riding in and out every day. 
uh, on my motorcycle. And one day I was riding a K1200S, which is mm -hmm. a very, very big, fast, heavy BMW motorcycle. And it was very icy. Mm. And uh, I managed to get this bike in onto the car park on, on, on sheet ice with my feet down. And rode in. He said, how did you do that? I said, oh, I don't know. It was easy enough. Just you know, took care of all this. On the way in, I'd, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Mm. I came off a roundabout and opened it up. And the bike oscillated between the back wheel spinning up and just wheeling. And it went wheelie, spin, wheelie, spin. Oh, nice. Yeah, I like That's pretty this. cool. I wish I could do it on demand. Well, but, but he said, um, you know, Steve, you should be a stuntman. And I thought, you know what, I'd like to be a stuntman, but I think maybe at 51, I'm a bit old to start. No, with th that's totally not true. No? There's literally, there's one guy, uh, I think his name is Ben. Uh, I'm going to uh, butcher this. He's, uh, I think he's even older than you are, and he qualified for British Stunt Did you just say even older? <laughs> Did you just say <laughs> Which even means older? That you can, can, can still do it. Even older than you, Steve. Thank you, Renaz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all I'm saying that uh, he, uh, you still have time. I still That's, have time. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. Just digging that. <laughs> just digging not it. dead yet. You're a so, politician. And he is. You're not dead and yet. he's engineer. His background's engineering, and he's literally building these. Uh, you know, the, these cars. When you think it's an actor driving, yeah. but a lot of those cars has on the roof. There's this old rig where stuntman is driving. Uh -huh. Have you ever seen those? No. I will, I will, I will put, put on the thing to, uh, for you to see. But yeah, so he literally builds those and uh, he flies uh, planes. He uh, does a, a lot of interesting car stuff and, he, and he's a stuntman. So what if I or somebody watching this wants to become a stuntman in their 50s? What do you have to do? Well, there are a couple of ways to do this in UK. I would say maybe two main ways to do it in UK. Is the way I I did it uh, is the to qualify for British Stunt Register as everyone calls it BSR. Uh, you need to qualify in six disciplines. By your, it's your choice. You can choose out of eight or nine di different disciplines, and then you uh, get them all ticked off, uh, and uh, and then uh, you send all this information to the uh, board mm -hmm. of the uh, British Stunt Register, and then they accept you, and then you become a part of this very uh, cool group called BSR and uh, you have your own page on this big book and uh, then people who ever look for stunt performers they need they just look you up and so if they up. need a 51 year old guy in medium shape bit of a dad bod working it, on it the, the thing is like we actually one of our really amazing stunt stunt performers he's about 65 yeah and he's because uh, usually stunt stunt performers they qualify to be uh, um uh, stunt coordinators right. so they wouldn't do performing they would be just in charge of uh, all these guys what they're safety doing and it's like safety and and dealing with all the actors and a lot of paperwork basically as soon as you become stunt coordinator you get fat and and bold and <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> not all of them not all of them some of them it's just because a lot of stress it's yeah. a lot of stress a lot of pressure yeah uh, but there are some stunt guys who are like i don't want to deal with any of that and they just continue being stunt performers and what's the balance between men and women who are stunt performers oh Oh, it's a, it's a huge uh, gap, I would say. Like, there's probably seventy or eighty percent would be male performers, yeah, probably so even more. What would you say to women who want to get into stunt performing? I would say go for it. Yeah. I'm not kidding you. Two days ago, I was in David Lloyd's. Uh, I'm I'm a member there, mm -hmm. and this one girl, she's uh, she's this lovely waitress. She's about twenty years old, and uh, she likes bikes. She, we start talking because uh, she saw me uh, having a helmet. And she's oh, what do you ride? Oh, I ride this and. And then, and then I said, like, what do you do? She's, oh, I'm a physiotherapist. I'm like, be honest to me. Do you really want to be, like, the physiotherapist? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's well paid. It's like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. Those are not the reasons. Do you really like that? And she's like, yeah, it's well, do. Think about stunt performer. 
And then, because uh, stunt performers, if you, especially for women, there's not much of competition, and she's quite tall. Yeah. Um, which is quite rare uh, thing. So, you can work maybe three, four years, and you can make enough money to buy property and do all those kind of things. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it can be very tough to be a stunt performer, but it can be very lucrative. When you say tough, what does that mean? Injuries. Uh, it could be injuries, but also like just very long shoot hours. Sometimes they do night shoots, and uh, and they go from night shoots to day shoots, and that messes up your body so bad. Like your biological clock goes to, like one of my first jobs, I was working on the uh, film called The Hitman's Bodyguard, and oh, I yeah, ne- yeah, I never done the night shoots before, and I did two weeks of night shoots. Um, I never had like such a stomach problems, like just having like my, my immune system was down. I never had that before. Mm. And I had that all there. So what other films have you done that we've heard of? Uh, Bond. Have you heard of that? Bond? I have James, maybe. James Bond, Bond, yeah. Have you done yeah. Bond movies? Mission Impossible. That's a yeah. uh, what an indie, indie movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? Like the recently, right now I'm working on The Witcher. The um, It's a TV series, the swords and stuff. Right, right. Um, so and I saw you on your Instagram playing a soldier. Yeah, just recently now I posted. Yeah, you, you posted. Yeah, we're gonna come to his podcast. Yeah, it's uh, good. It's a cool picture. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a film called The Death on the Nile. Oh right. Yeah. So El Carpurro, he's investigating stuff, and we basically he's like very beginning when the film starts. Uh, he's uh, they're showing like how where did the El Carpurro came from, and he was this uh, uh, not that he was like in charge like captain or one of those higher rank guys, and he was in charge of like this attack. Uh, towards Germans and I was playing one of the German soldiers so I got blown up and I was like flying across so I guess when you're on set um, some of the stars of the movies will be approachable and friendly and Keanu Reeves for example is very famous for being very approachable and others I guess are more standoffish do you find that some stars want to talk to you and it's a you see this one is a tough one because um, Really depending on, like, just worked with the working Phoenix on the uh, uh, Napoleon yeah. uh, with Ridley Scott, uh, which is going to be a massive f- uh, film. He, as far as I understand, this is, again, this is just me, how, as much as I understand, as much we as stunt performers, we talk to each other. Mm-hmm. He's a method actor. Right. When you're a method actor, you are in the character the whole oh, time. Oh, see, that's it. So, so you're if, yeah, if your character is a psychopathic weirdo, you're going to be like that the whole time. Huh. So to go and try to figure out how this person is as a person, it's pretty much impossible. Because on set, he's a psychopathic weirdo, right? Okay. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But yeah, but, <laughs> okay, no, of course. But uh, he's got to stay in character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's and it's also like every time he would go on a set, it's not like he's just like, oh, I have nothing to do. I'm just wandering around. So they get ready for their scenes. So they they yeah. go through their um, through their scripts and all that, so they're busy. Um, but yeah, there's some actors like, uh, for example, Samuel Lee Jackson. Uh, he was really friendly when we worked in uh, Hitman's Bodyguard. And Hitman's Bodyguard, I got the acting part as well. So I came on the set and I get uh, I was on a call sheet next to Ryan Reynolds and Samuel Lee Jackson as Great. a cast. Yeah, um, that was pretty cool. And so my trailer was between both of them, and I was like, oh my god, finally my dreams come true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Ra- Ryan you, was really nice. Would you move from uh, Stunt performing to acting, and do, do people do that? Yeah, they do that. And I actually got my uh, my acting agent. Uh, well, I haven't heard from him for a while now. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, but um, there was a period when I was very, I wouldn't say demanded, but I had quite a lot of jobs. Uh, and my main thing is because I speak Russian. Right. So they would look for a Russian speaker. You know that's going to actors. You know that's going to trigger all my trolls now. Oh really? Oh yeah, because people fantasize about these crazy ideas about the Russians are behind everything, and the oh, right. Russians are behind lots of bad stuff. Yeah, not me. But now that Steve Bakes say something in Russian for my followers. Uh, добрый день, дорогие друзья. 
I just said, hello, my dear friends. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, just don't say something like, uh, this is Steve Baker, he's one of our agents. Oh, <laughs> go on, do that. At <laughs> Steve Baker on, um, on Nash Agent. That is now going to go completely viral. <laughs> Secret again. People are going to be saying, we told you so. <laughs> <laughs> well, for people to understand, like, so I grew up in Latvia, and Latvia used to be in Soviet Union uh, as a country. So I was about six years old when Soviet Union collapsed. And then even then after after that, uh, so like the army would leave the the country, but there's so many people who uh, were born in the, in Latvia and, and you know they have their families, and so they left there. So it was about twenty to thirty percent of Russians mm-hmm. uh, as comparing to Latvian population, and it still is now, and I think it's even more now. It's about thirty five percent or up to forty percent. Russians live in Latvia and there are some cities where they only speak Russian it's crazy like mm. there's a city called Daugopils if you go to the store and you ask them something in Latvian they're like going to look at you puzzled why yeah. don't you speak the language yeah so um, this is really interesting with the Ukraine war going on because mm. presumably that means people in Latvia are worried of a similar phenomenon where Russian dominated regions want to be part of Russia I'm not sure about that but like yeah it's it's because it, I went to Latvia just recently hence my eye do you see it? Yeah. This is a bike crash. I crashed crashed my scooter. Not my scooter, my friend's scooter. And I slid basically what happened as I was riding. Uh, they have a tram lines on a, on a road. And I slid on that. And it just, I think there was some oil on it. Mm-hmm. And my I lost control and I just flew into the side of a thing. You're recovering pretty well. Oh, yeah. I broke the four ribs and all that stuff. It was fun. Ooh, yeah, it's been a month ago. So it's fine now. Yay. Um, uh, yeah, so just going back to... Also, the the Russians and Latvians. So why speak? I speak Russian. So the town where I grew up, we literally had fifty fifty. I went to kindergarten. We would have a half half. We would have Latvians half and Russians half. So we always would mingle with each other. So I could speak fluently since I was a little kid. And also, we had a lot of influence from Russian uh, TV. We have movies, cartoons that was all Russian. And honestly, some of the best comedies to this day. I think Russians have amazing sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, at the time, they were doing a lot of propaganda with alcohol. So almost all the comedy was like, drink vodka, it's good for you. <laughs> and that's, that's why there was a lot of alcoholics in, uh, in, in, in Latvia. And so there must be a big thing. demand for Russian speakers right now in the movies. In, in, well, you think? There. I think it's the other way around. Well, so... I think I now mean, everyone is like very on the eggshells about it. Like they don't. Yeah. I don't think they want to be like oh, I Russians. If, I would have thought. Wait, yeah, but you, if you want a bad guy for a movie, you'd pick a Russian right now. Yeah, you? yeah. To be honest, like I haven't heard any any Russiany stuff. Uh, I actually no. I did one film, to, um, film called the um, the Heart of Stone. Yeah, Heart of Stone. Uh, they they need like Russian uh, militia. So we were like uh, Russian fighters, or whatever. I played yeah. that. Yeah, we yelled in Russian a lot. Yelled. In yeah, Russian it was like coming in and like ah, get down now. Yeah, no, that's a different. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, let's just hope the Ukraine war comes to an end um, and a satisfactory one with the Ru- with Russia driven out. Um, but um, yeah, that's well, a tough one. I, it's I really, huge. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible what they're doing and, and evil. It's wicked. And at the same time, things are start happening in Asia as well. So they start doing some crazy stuff. Yeah, and it doesn't look very wise that Nancy Pelosi went there. Oh, and, uh, I don't know. I really don't have no idea what's about politics and about what is going on there, so I'm probably not going to comment in that area. But to see just... It's just crazy to see that in this in this day and age, these kind of things are happening. 
and people are just like, well, we can't do much because if yeah. we do this, we do that, they're going to happen. So how come when, when uh, you know, World War Two and the Germany was doing crazy stuff, how come you guys then, oh, oh, we need to step in because it's too much. So is that what you're waiting for? Well, yeah, I mean, so there's so much in all of that. When, when it's about waiting for things, one of the problems is, um, of course, nuclear weapons. And one of the things I think we've seen with Ukraine is that if you have nuclear weapons, you can wage practically unrestricted conventional war. And this is a very dangerous phenomenon because that's telling the world, well, get nuclear weapons and you can yeah. you can have unrestricted uh, war to further your ends. So it's a terrible, terrible signal for ba a lot of bad actors out there. And one of the problems I think we've got is that... Um, Come closer to the microphone. Oh, sorry. Fist, remember? Fist. I thought you were going further. No, 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 no closer. closer. Further. <laughs> Ooh, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so there's a big problem that there's that the fundamental features of human nature haven't changed for millennia, right? There's still bad people who want to get status and power and are willing to use force to get it. Mm. People with crazy ideas about nationalism, crazy ideas uh, about which they'll sometimes dress up around religion, which even uh, Putin has done. Um, in relation to Kiev. So, in a world of bad actors, what are you going to do to try and keep the peace? Well, having a strong defence is a very good start. We should maintain our nuclear uh, strategic deterrent. But when it comes to what you're waiting for, we've got to be so careful not to get into an unconstrained war with China. And in fact, see the head of MI6 recently warned mm. that we don't have the safeguards in place with China that we had with Russia during the Cold War. And that's a big deal. I mean, I think when I was growing up, I'm, you know, 51, so Cold War ended um, when I was about 18. I went to Berlin shortly after the wall came down. But, you know, through my teenage years, we grew up with the idea that, you know, it could, could all be over quite quickly mm. if something went wrong. So the idea um, of not having safeguards uh, is quite worrying. And we've just got to be super careful not to accidentally stumble into a, a war with a nuclear armed power. So um, that implies a great deal of responsibility. The problem I think we have, which is what we're seeing with Russia, is when you have a president with whom you can't reason, who is mm. willing to use extreme um, violence um, to wage war to get what they want, you, suddenly the rationality quits the horizon and you've just got to be well armed. And um, it's very, very sad indeed that, that that aspect of human nature never seems to change. But we've just got to deal with it and not, uh, not be naive. Mm. And it's interesting how through through years and stuff and that human nature doesn't change. We still need to have yep. who has the most power, who who's going to be the leader. It's crazy, isn't it? And most of us, most of us, I do say us actually, most of us don't want any of that bullshit. Yeah. We just want to get on with our lives and do normal things and fun things. Do work that's interesting and important and fun. And I help mean, each other and, and live in a lovely community. I yeah, know. and that's what most people want. And into this comes politicians. So you could ask yourself, what can a normal person do about this? Mm -hmm. I'm afraid it's the one thing most people don't want to do. That's getting just a little bit involved in politics. Yeah. So a real, this is so important. If I was to ask people to take one thing away from my point of view... Just join the political party of your choice. It's never going to be perfect. Mm. It's always going to be something you don't like. But just pick the political party that's closest to your views and get involved mm. because then you can have a vote to prevent bad candidates getting uh, elected. What is the main con uh, uh, excuse for people not to join? Well, we just hate politics, want nothing to do with it. I mean, I think that's it. It's just ugly. It's ugly. It's, it's grubby. It's mean-spirited people don't want anything to do with it but it doesn't have to be that way right but i think nowadays the biggest problem why people don't want to join in because they all say we're too busy 
We're yeah, getting but, on with our lives. We have to do this. We have to do that. Even like just looking into my life, like I want to try to do so many different things. I want to do this and that. And and like when I have that free time, I maybe would read a little bit of book or something like that, and yeah. to think about trying to understand. So what's a about minimal it. a minimal involvement in politics really isn't much time. It's twenty twenty five pounds a year, which I would say large numbers of people can afford afford to pay mm-hmm. to be a Conservative Party member. For that, you end up with a vote in the uh, the process of selecting the next leader. So it's about 120,000 people are going to vote to pick the next leader of the Conservative Party and Prime mm-hmm. Minister. That's quite a big deal. And that gives you a lot more power than being in an electorate of tens of millions. So, you know, that's the first thing. £25 a year buys you, because that's what you have to be a member to vote. It's reasonable. So that gets you the opportunity to vote in the leadership contest. Then there's the selection of members of parliament. So I've been an MP for 12 years. I don't know what the average tenure is, but I suppose it's 15 years or so. You don't, you know, voting once every 15 years or whatever. And then, of course, council candidates. Now, it's not a lot to ask to go, people to go to a selection meeting mm. and hear the candidates out and say, actually, I'm a little bit concerned about your vanity or your competence mm. or your fundamental motivations and just vote for someone else. But th- this is, I'm afraid, the big problem we've got. Non-participation yeah. means that the worst can get on top. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy called Hayek wrote in a book called The Road to Serfdom about this, why the words worst get on top. And, um, yeah, the answer to it is for normal, decent, civilised people who don't want all this politically voti- motivated nonsense in their lives to just get involved and stop it by voting against the idiots that uh, otherwise will go forward. How often do you hear then when say they say, like, oh, we voted f- uh, for the least uh, bad option? Yeah, you do get that. A lot of people who are in that territory, they will stay at home. So in Wickham, in a typical election, about a third of the people will vote Conservative, about a third of the people will vote for another candidate, and about Mm. a third of the people will stay at home. That's typically what Mm. happens. But I remember once saying to somebody with decades more political experience than me, I want to drive up per turnout. Yeah, just a moral, sensible thing to do. Let's get people voting. And she turned to me with an old-fashioned look on her face and said, Steve... I don't care if three people turn out so long as two vote for you. And I thought, hmm, yeah, because in the end, politics, once you're a politician, politics is about winning. Mm -mm -mm. Why? Because you want to win because you think your ideas are right for society. If Mm -hmm. you're even, even the best motivated person wants to be in politics because they believe that their ideas are, are the best for our society. So, if you want to serve the public like that, you've, you've got to win. You've got to get elected. Mm. And you've, once you're elected, you've got to become a minister. And this creates a set of incentives for people that with either, even the most angelic candidate are bound to drive them to want to win and then to want to get on in their career. Because so, suppose a person's got great ideas for, for example, reducing poverty by taking control of the Department for Work and Pensions and implementing very worthy reforms to deliver universal credit with higher basic amounts of money coming to people, a taper rate improved, all that stuff. All good. There's a good argument that could really improve people's well-being lifelong, break cycles of worklessness, economic uh, dependency, debt addictions, all the family breakdown, all these things which happen, very often driven by poverty. So there'd be very, imagine there's very, very good high moral reasons for wanting to be in that position. But to actually get to be the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, mm. you've got to become a candidate... You've got to get uh, elected in a seat you can hold for a long time. You've got to work your way up through the ministerial ranks, and that often will mean choking down policies that you don't really like Mm. because it's loyalty which gets you on in the Conservative Party. And then eventually, after years, 
you become the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. And I'm not picking on the current incumbent, Therese Coffey, she's very nice. I'm just making the point that it's a very, very long journey yeah. to, to become a Secretary of State for even the most well-motivated person. So, yeah, insofar as politics has big, big flaws... I would say one of the biggest root causes is non-participation by voters in political parties because that's where you can make the most difference to who you actually get as a candidate. Mm. And it doesn't take a lot of time. You probably, you'd probably need to devote a few hours a year. So what would be the easiest way? Uh, obviously, I'm asking for the easiest way because we want the easiest way in everything. Of course we do. Yeah. And the fastest way in everything. For, let's say for young people, for young teenagers, yeah. um, just start getting, uh, dip their toe a little bit into politics and have more understanding of what's going on. What is out there? What kind of, uh, what kind of websites or uh, oh, so TV programs and that kind of stuff? So I link to loads of stuff from my website, stevebaker.info. I probably need to put some more stuff right on the front page. Now I've said this on your podcast. Yeah. But um, this, uh, uh, YouTube channels like Learn Liberty, which is an amazing, amazing uh, channel, uh, Prague University is uh, set up on YouTube to appeal to young people. Um, I recommend loads of uh, books, some of which are very slim. So I, I do a book um, a book club in Parliament for young researchers, oh, nice. pe- young people in their 20s and 30s. And w- once a month we get together, pizza, pizza, wine. That's how you learn them, them in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pizza, pizza and wine. But they come, they come, actually, do you know what? They come for the ideas. Yeah. So we did a seminar. We did a three seminars on a book called Principles for I Free I dare Society. you to question at the end, why did you came from before here? And anyone can uh, write down anonymous? And how many people are going to say pizza and wine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think, they ca- I think they come for the book. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. We pack my office with young people discussing the principles for a free society. So equality, civil society, tolerance, democracy, free enterprise. It's about a dozen in a book. It's a book is only about, you know, I don't know, that thick. Mm. Maybe... 50 pages and anyone could sit down and read it in a couple of sittings easily so pe- people should inform themselves but an informed electorate is the best defense uh, for a free and prosperous society um, you know socialism i've got to say it, i'm conservative because i believe in freedom socialism is always the attempt to organize society by decree mm-hmm. and it never works it always produces poverty and misery and even mass murder that is the historical experience, and socialists don't like to hear it said, but that's always what happens. They start off with these utopian ideas, but in the end, their utopian ideas can only be brought forward by increasing the use of force in society. And if you increase the use of force in society, you're bound to get a more aggressive, more violent society. And, 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 and that, to me, is one of the big arguments for not being a socialist. It doesn't matter how good your ultimate intents are, how... how um, how utopian you are, if the methods you choose are never going to work, well, do something different. Mm. So I'm, I'm a classical liberal. I believe in freedom. I believe we need some government, but it should be relatively minimal. You know, we were talking earlier about something. We didn't use the word virtue. But talking about how we relate to one another in community. Yeah. Actually, people need to choose to be virtuous. You know, and choosing to be virtuous means being temperate in how we relate to one another, how we listen. It means being courageous and hopeful. It means loving people, actually choosing to be optimistic and hopeful about other people. And so it, actually rediscovering virtue and freedom would be a great way to rebase our society in a way that I think the vast majority of people would approve of. Mm. But how can I pass a law to make people virtuous? I can't. This is one of the great tensions. In a sense, it's the only story in human civilization. To me, it's, it's the story of big religions. It's the story of politics. To what extent should people be forced by law to behave in certain ways to set society right? Mm. 
So can I tell you the big story of the Bible, the way I see it? Go for it. All right, so God creates everything. Everything's good. Yeah. People fall, they just start doing stuff wrong. God then gives the people the law, but they can't even manage to obey ten rules. They followed God through the desert, and then they, they pour... And it, well, two, two of the first two... The first two rules are about only worshipping God, so they pour gold into a calf and worship that. People are very, very bad at following rules. The prophets in the Bible, all, all apart from one, say, turn back to the law and to God. Habakkuk cries out on behalf of the people and says something terrible is coming. God says, I'm in charge. So you, they've got this problem that God gives people the law and then they're very, very bad at following it. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the Old Testament. It's a big story of people failing to follow the law to set society right. And it doesn't work even for God. There'd be atheists watching this, but I'm saying just in terms of the Bible, it, the big story there in the Old Testament, it is that the law does not work to set society right even for God. Then you get into the New Testament, and Jesus comes and he fulfills the law and sets us free from it, sets it aside by faith. So by faith you end up clothed in the righteousness of God himself incarnate as man. That's, that's the incredible miracle of it. Mm-hmm. Christianity is the only re- religion where God comes along and reaches down to us where we are in our fallen and sinful state, and lifts us up, says, I love you so much, I want you to be crazy, this is a crazy thing, a bit like me. That's what he says. Jesus is the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. But the point about politics and religion, and one of the reasons it mixes so badly, it's about the same fundamental problem, that you cannot set society right by force of law. And that's why I think we've got so many rolling crises now, because so many people in our society believe that, society, that we could improve matters if, if only we used more, more force, more law. Mm, mm. And it's not working. I mean, just you know, how is it working out for us to have very, very high taxes and debase the currency and so much regulation going through Parliament that people like me can't even scrutinise it? You know, it, it is not actually working out very well. And I wouldn't have expected it to because it never has. But so if you ask people, where do you start to get into politics? Well, start thinking about what you want in your relationships. Mm. Because everybody's got some idea of what they want in their relationships. Well, okay, once you've thought about relationships and virtue and what it means to actually love someone or be a friend or whatever, or to work in business, what would good look like in your relationships? Well, then ask yourself, what's the role of force in those relationships? And I think, excuse me, (coughs) hay fever. He was partying last night. That's what happened. Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> Every night. In fact, I actually was partying last night. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I actually, MPs partying. Hey, hey. <laughs> MPs can party. What M- was the party? It, it was just some people came around to my house. It was quite quiet, cool. really. Um, so once people have worked out what good looks like in relationships, then think, well, what's the role of force in those relationships? And I think most people would conclude well, they don't want a lot of force in it. Usually when there's force in relationships, we call it, it a work. crime, yeah. right? It's, well, it also doesn't work. It doesn't like Whatever work. is being pushed or whatever is being and not natural, like it doesn't go with the flow, so it's yeah. not going to work. Yeah, and this is the case for freedom, right? Because mm. we, keep te- we keep coming along and saying, well, government should do more, tax more, spend more, regulate more. Well, that actually is force being used in our lives and in society and um, so I would say for people who want to get involved in politics and understand what's going on understand first and foremost that politics is about how and why force is used in society in our relationships and then ask yourself to well how do I feel about that what do I want from my relationships and most people actually would like the government to stop telling them what to do I mm. think so for me that's why I'm a, uh, a classical liberal that's why I'm a conservative because I believe in freedom and I believe in virtue, and I believe in responsibility. 
And if all of us could just manage to find a way to treat others as we would like to be treated, yeah. it's very old. That's, th that's the biggest one. It's, um, you know, like when you talk about religion, you know, it's uh, one of tough subjects because uh, I grew up in a very religious uh, family. Like, um, I would say not that much family, but more like environment. So yeah. where I grew up, I, I went to... Uh, uh, a holy pilgrimage uh, when I was like seven, eight years old. We went, we walked for like four days to this holy place in Latvia. Mm -hmm. And um, my mother, she's a journalist. For fif 15 years, she was a journalist or she had her own magazine called The Life of Catholics. Right. And so we had all the priests and bishops uh, in our house just coming for like chat with my mom about like what would be the next piece they would be writing about and stuff like yeah. that. So also when I was a kid, my mom would take me to the church downstairs where you have to be calm and like yeah. on knees and all that and I, I couldn't stay still for two seconds so I figured out how to uh, go around with this and I went uh, became a, a choir guy so I started singing up, you, upstairs. So you're the choir boy who got into go-go dancing? Yeah I was a choir Amazing. boy for eight years but choir choir boy was against my will, go-go dancing was not that against my will Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, so in the way I look in the religion and, and now especially like I don't know that much about different religions, but like about Catholics, so I have I have a big strong opinion what's going on there for years now, and it's still just going on. It's just going on. It's continued. Like it's all it's all good. Um, but the, you know what? There's too much religion can definitely spoil your faith in God. I definitely I've always <laughs> felt that. But you go to church now. There's messy church for kids, and kids are not. Well, there's so many different churches people to go to, but I, I do really fear that a lot of people's faith in God gets spoiled by the way that human beings have a capacity to spoil everything. But um, really the point I'm making is that um, if you're a politician, you have to think really deeply about what it means to live life in society. We don't have to, I suppose. There are some crap politicians who don't. Mm. But we should all be thinking very carefully about life in society and what it means to create a good society. Mm. What, does, what would it mean to create a society within which people could be full and flourishing individuals and no one's left behind? Do you think there's another way to uh, explain to... Probably it's easier because the religion has been around for such a long time, the traditions are so strong. But like, let's say like when I said to my mom, uh, in my, my little town, I grew up like three, 4,000 people town, and I said to my mom, like, look, there's so many evidence that, uh, you know, the church and all that, there's, there's a lot of bad shit going on yeah how come how come we need to go to church and like you can see also like as a kid i could see that older ladies they would go yes go to church but when they outside the church they're the most evil mean people ever ever yeah and they consider to be like oh the holy or whatever like they're faithful and like we had this one neighbor she was just horrible person and there's she no was like there's no excuse for it yeah and she would be like yeah let's go to church it's so important yeah. you should pray for this pray for that and i'm like that in my brain as a kid i this is wrong oh yeah, yeah you know and then and i understood from the beginning treat other people how you would like to be treated you know and then it's like why can't we have something else like some kind of a community come together play games whatever but it's not under the church umbrella why we can't have that and then my mom just explained simply because we never had it. Because there's yeah. never been that kind of a stronger, bigger thing. Because in literally in that, my little town, two options, church or pub. Yeah. Nothing in between. There's no community uh, kind of a social place where people come together and socialize. Yeah. None of that. And I was like always wondering why we can't have that. Because there's no tradition for years and generations. And someone has to come up with that tradition. Well, this is how we make... Well, yeah, right, exactly. So this is how we make progress, is people get fed up with the institutions that we have, mm. and we need the freedom through trial and error to come up with better ways of living. 
And I've got huge sympathy with everything you've just said. You were right then when you were a child, you're right now. But people who, um, if people are, you know, I, you know, we all fall short, but if you're a Christian, you should be witnessing love. That's what people should be doing. So if you walk out of church and you're suddenly one of the most wicked people around, that's clearly not acceptable. And um, there's plenty of stuff in the New Testament about telling people off, really, for um, behaving that way in Paul's letters. But, um, yeah, about institutions and people socialising and doing things better, yeah. I mean, we, but we need to find the enthusiasm and the love within our mm. hearts to actually say, well, I want to I be more connected to that person and lift them up. And, yeah, reinventing our institutions and finding the resources to do it, to come together in new ways. Mm. Yeah, that's what we should be doing as a society, and we should be happy to do it. Yeah, and, and for me, one of the biggest ones is, like, instead of saying, like, Steve... I, I, I think um, you're a lovely person or Peter, you're a great man. I love you. Not because, because very often people say like, oh, because cause of the God said that to me, like, yeah, that's why you're great. No, because I thought it. It's a common sense. Yeah, yeah. That is my biggest problem. When they go behind that, again, umbrella of the religion, like, oh, t uh, Ten Commandments. What, you didn't know that you shouldn't kill your neighbor? Yeah, yeah. Like how, you know, that those are the <laughs> yeah, things yeah. that I struggle with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you didn't know that you shouldn't sleep with your neighbor's wife? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, but I do understand that because of these old, old traditions that people have easier time to kind of believe that that is the right way because that generation, generation has done it before. Yeah. And then when you see the Catholic uh, priests coming out with documentaries, how, what they've done with kids in the past, yeah. and then I'm like, and we still have Catholic Church. It's there. It's fine. It's all good. Let's move on. <laughs> it's wicked. There's wickedness everywhere and people are right to be angry about it. Yeah. Okay, we have uh, one hour. Let's have a little break. Let's, let's have break. a little break. Okay, let's have a little, have a little break. break. <laughs> That's not pink. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm colorblind, but I'm kind of colorblind. That's quite orange. That's, That's okay. I'm open to orange. Yeah, red. Hey, red light district. <laughs> have you been in one? Perfect thing to talk about. That is a perfect thing to talk about. <laughs> I'm so happy that as a, a politician, you're asking me about whether I've ever been in a red light district. And I cannot tell a lie. I did once visit Amsterdam, which has a red light district. Yeah. District. I and? did not. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't. I, I was very boring. I didn't even go to the uh, cannabis cafes and smoke. I didn't. What? I so what's the point to go to Amsterdam then? I don't know. I can't remember. Why was I in Amsterdam? I think I was on a sail. Tra I was doing something very worthy, like being on a sail training ship, and we pulled into Amsterdam. Oh right. So were you then a politician already? Or no, no, I was like a teenager, like eighteen oh. or something. And you were already like just a but what they call the straight arrow. Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I was, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, That's all right. Yeah, yeah, but Amsterdam's red light district is uh, terrific, um, it, it, you know. It's something different, like we went there, last time when there was uh, on my 30th, uh, I went with my dream boy guys. Yeah. And um, we were bubbles. we were working two nights before then, and I was so tired, all, we all were so exhausted, so we went in, smoked some weed. I can say that I smoke weed. Once it was in a legal while. there, right? Yeah, obviously in Amsterdam it's legal. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> like how you just like <laughs> uh, it was legal, <laughs> and uh, and then what weed does to you? Well, you can you know maybe giggle whatever, but it made us even more tired. Yeah. So imagine we already like haven't slept properly, <laughs> and we barely just walking, and it was like we have the whole night in front of us. What are we gonna do? <laughs> and one of our guys had a genius idea. Peter, Peter, what's up, man? Uh, he's like, how about we go to cinema, 
and we watch a movie, but we don't watch a movie. We just have a nap. For two and a half hours, we had a perfect <laughs> nap right in the front row. All these guys just out. And then we went in, we had amazing The nights. truth about the Dream Boys. Exactly, because we thought, like, hotel? We're not going to want a hotel for two and a half hours or for three hours. Um, it's going to be expensive, whatever. A film was perfect. Because we all were woken up by the staff working there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me, the film is over? I was like, really? It was fantastic. <laughs> That was the Amsterdam story. Um, one of the things what I want to talk to you about is the um, uh, how interesting, in, is it only in the UK you have this parliament thing when people do this here, here, and, and all this like interesting yelling and vocal thing? I, I think it's a very British tradition. There yeah. are other parliaments around the world who work on our system, so like uh, Australia and Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, you know, the the rules Erskine May, the rules of how Parliament is uh, operated, are pretty common, mm -hmm. common for Commonwealth Parliaments. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's Commonwealth Parliaments will quite often be very similar. But this particular style of braying and making noises because the very first time British. I saw it, I was like, I have no idea what this you is going on. You should come and though. sit in the gallery and watch it. It's crazy, <laughs> but it's it, it's the only place you can really make a speech where people, apart from perhaps political hustings, where people will try and make you fail. Mm. So they'll say, "Will he give way? Will he give way?" What does, that, what does that mean? It means that you're making a speech, and I want you to sit down, shut up, and let me say something yeah. in rebuttal. And um, if you're an idiot when you're trying to intervene, they'll give way to you easily because they know that they'll say something stupid, and then they've got the last word. And uh. so it's easy; it's in your favour. But if you're if you've got a reputation for making good interventions, which are hard to answer. They won't very often. They won't won't give way. Mm -mm. So, um, but you'll end up sitting or standing there shouting, "Will he give way?" And mm. um, sounds like Willie. Who's Willie? Willie. Who's Willie? Yeah. <laughs> will he? Will uh, Will the honourable gentleman give way? Yeah. And uh, you can get quite angry about that and throw their um, uh, their, throw them off their, their their as I have just gone off off, yeah, off yeah, their yeah, thread. Yeah. That's all right. But also, there's uh, yeah here here here, and also here here becomes yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and that's very. It's either ironic or it's a bit public school. So I went to comprehensive school. Yeah. I'm a working class kid from comprehensive, but a lot of my colleagues are posh public. Thank you. They're po oh, oh, sorry. Oh. They're posh public school kids. Do the other one. Do the other one. Posh public school. There we go. No, I've got nothing against posh public school kids. They 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 deserve uh, everything. I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> Andrew Neil definitely needs to get this. Um. So, you know, here, here becomes, well, yeah, yeah, and get walls of noise to support the Prime Minister. It's all very visceral. And people sometimes say it's too much, but I wouldn't want to go to like a U-shaped boring chamber where everybody's sitting yeah. there. Because you're also well. used to this. It's like it's, it has some kind of organic, like a feel to it. Like you yeah. feel like you perform, like almost like a stand-up comedian performing in front oh, of... Oh, definitely. You feel the mood of the place. I mean, yeah, I've never yeah, yeah. done stand-up comedy, as you can probably tell. Yeah, yeah, uh, No, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Uh, sorry. Yeah, didn't mean that. Um. <laughs> so I've never done stand-up comedy, but when you do make a political speech, you can really feel the atmosphere. I guess yeah, yeah. that sense of feeling the atmosphere. But the House of Commons has an atmosphere and a life of its own. So PMQs is one thing, the budget another. When you're debating war and peace or some very serious matter, if, if an MP ch shares a personal testimony about mental health or 
or poverty or whatever that that can bring the house to a completely yeah, different yeah, silence. Part of silence. So it does it does really work, and it's um, I think it's better for it actually. Well, talking about public speaking, you see, like before I did stand up, which I just started recently, I did public speaking for about ten years. I started with the club called the Toastmasters. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I started in uh, in uh, Saskatoon in Canada. One of the main reasons was because I wanted to improve my English, you know. So. Um, and what I saw straight away was like me not having a comprehensive or coherent English wasn't such a big deal. There's so many war- bigger uh, obstacles what people struggle with, uh, even those who have English as a first language. Yeah. Whether they mumble, whether they uh, speak too fast, whether uh, they struggle with eye contact, whether mm-hmm. they do all these kind of things. So today, I literally watched one of your speeches and you... It's a really good speech yeah, in the sense you. of like as a public speaker. So you you know you know you knew how to how to enunciate. You knew how to look in people uh, people around and things like that. So which is very important. How did you get there? Did you do some training or you just kind of well, start doing it and then you realize oh this works doesn't work maybe and you just got com- more confident and confident. You're very generous because I usually come away from my speeches thinking I could have done better because you know you watch a TED talk or whatever and people will be amazed. But that's good. And, you yeah. always have to go, go like this. You can't go yeah. off. Oh. Smashed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I did once get cheered in the gallery. You know, they talk about don't play to the galleries, but the gallery did love my speech. I and you realised they cheered they, about they, something they else. They literally, no, I, I <laughs> sat down and they stood up and they were cheering. There were people who'd been uh, rolled over by banks um, um, through interest rate swap, Miss Sterling. Yeah, and they, they were just cheering. a pretty lady just passing by. No, <laughs> no, but they were absolutely, they were on their feet. Oh, well, it was amazing. Okay. But it um, doesn't happen very often. I suppose um, Royal Air Force maybe do public speaking. All right. If you're an engineer officer, you've got to address groups of people and make give briefings and all that. That that helped. Um, yeah, and then I suppose through business, giving training courses and so on, just practicing. But actually, looking at how it should be done is definitely something I've mm. I've I've looked into. There's an amazing uh, public speaker uh, trainer called uh, Caroline Goida, who's really good. At She's amazing. Shout out to Caroline. Caroline, she's amazing. She's Caroline Goider. Goider, G-O-Y-D-E-R. And she gave us some uh, brilliant uh, public speaking training. So much of it is in breathing, grounding yourself mm. and breathing. And I can feel myself doing it now, pausing. Mm. When you pause, you think it's forever. But the listener just hears somebody collecting their thoughts and it can add gravitas to what you're doing. So, um, yeah, I suppose I have thought about it, but I wouldn't say I'm the best orator. Somebody like Daniel Hannan does amazing speeches, and his delivery is incredible. And there are one or two in the House of Commons who it's, for whom it's, 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 it's a big moment when they make a speech. So Jacob mm. Rees-Mogg's speeches are often very, very good. Um, so it can be very theatrical in there. What do you think you need to do to get better? With do you, What do I need yeah. to do? Or, well, or, just or for people. yourself or for anyone... Um, I think for myself, I need to strangely work on my vocabulary. I think over the course of time, in a a desire to be understood, you can oversimplify your vocabulary. And strangely, I sit here today and I think, I actually need to broaden my vocabulary, which Mm. is a strange admission to make. But that is is because um, very often on the theyworkforyou.com site, Mm -hmm. they assess your speech's readability on what's, I think it's called the Fleischkindcade scale. And you want because if you want to be understood, you, you don't want to be using um, words like say intangible. So Margaret Thatcher said, "There's no such thing as society." When you look at what she actually was explaining, what she meant was society is intangible. And if she'd used the big complicated word, 
she would have been better off. Mm. She might have been harder to understand by everyone. So there's this balance to be struck. So I want to be better in my selection of words. I want to be more precise. Um, and I think I also want to pause more. I would like a bit more drama in my speeches more reliably. Ta ta ta. Yeah. No. Yeah. A little Just bring that drama. effect with you every time. Yeah. But <laughs> if you uh, watch something like Tom Tugendhat did a great speech in the Commons about his experience uh, in um, Afghanistan or Iraq, I forget which now, which, but that's not really the point. The point was that the the way that he delivered that story and really conveyed what it was to mm. lead soldiers in that place and to have them killed. And the way he conveyed that was incredibly powerful. And you can make or break yourself on a good or bad speech. Most of our speeches pass without comment. I've had a few go, um, go not quite well, so, yeah, almost viral. But there's a place for humour in the House of Commons. I once um, <clears throat> was sitting there, David Cameron had come back with his EU deal and it was not very good. And um, I thought, I was sitting there in the Commons, bobbing up and down to ask a question. I thought I can ask something about the Court of Justice of the European Union again. (laughs) Or I could stand up and say something like this. This deal looks superficially good, shiny on the outside, but poke it and it's soft in the middle and stinks. Will he just admit that he has been reduced to polishing poo? Is that what you said? That's why something like (laughs) polishing poo. But people could hear it coming the way I'd be up to. They knew I was describing polishing. What was the reaction? Well, the House of uh, the, the Minister answering it was David Liddington, who was a friend. Um, but he said, uh, my, honor, my honourable friend's been polishing that question. Oh my God. <laughs> and the speaker laughed at it because it's not out of order, right? Uh, to say polishing poo was not out of order. And it was so successful. So, what words are out of order? Swear words. So F word would be out of order. Oh, totally. Unless you were. So if it, <coughs> I'm going to have to say this now. Uh oh. If I were to stand up into in the House of Commons and quote you. So if I said, my constituent, which you aren't, Renaz, uh, said he won't tolerate this bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that going to be the reaction? <laughs> yeah. You can say that. You can get away with that. So if somebody is trolling you and calling you an F- uh, effing C word, yeah, yeah. and you say, I, you can stand up and say, I was trolled this morning, Mr. Speaker, and I was called an effing C word. <laughs> and you could say those you're words just quoting in, someone, yeah. because you're quoting somebody. And if, if, but, but I think if you did it a lot, um, you'd be picked up on it. But so that parliamentary language is supposed to be temperate, well mannered, right, right. uh, good humoured, even. It's funny because, like, on the court in states, uh, as you heard about Johnny Depp's court, right? <coughs> so they, uh, he basically tries to explain that his uh, ex-wife mm-hmm. <coughs> took a shit on a pillow, but he instead he said um, something <coughs> uh, matter. Oh, I've forgotten already. Fecal, fecal matter, something yeah. uh, uh, left fecal matter on my pillow, <laughs> oh. <laughs> just because she couldn't because they like pooped on my pillow or something like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> But I did do it and I got away with it. And the amazing thing was, because it was so unusual and was a bit funny and was a bit dirty and horrible, mm. it was it was repeated again and again and again, day after day for a week on comedy shows and all sorts of things. Yeah, because it was memorable. Because it was memorable and funny. And it was probably the best political stunt I've ever done. Because it got the message out that the deal was, sh- was shit, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. that they were polishing poo. They were trying to make a shit deal like, look like a good one. But because I made it funny and memorable and, and, and uh, unexpected... It got it went viral, and my even my opponents were doing my own work for me. It was a huge success. Sweet, yeah, it was sweet. Yeah, it was how does it how does it feel to kind of go on edge? Oh, nasty! Because people people do not like that a member of parliament stood up and said polishing poo. 
I mean, they don't like it. They want more, you know. And and it was it was a grubby, or ugly thing to do, but it was very very successful, so it was worth the pain. And I must admit, I do still find it funny. But some of my supporters will not find it funny that I'm still sitting here talking to you, finding it funny. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's childish. But have you had but, a situation in your life when you say something and you like think it's on the verge of funny and verge of being over the top, and then you get <coughs> in trouble? Yeah, who hasn't? Who hasn't? But I think as I a, get all the time. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm shocked for us. Yeah, um, all but, the freaking time. I, but I would say that as a member of parliament with 12 years' experience, I can't allow myself to be there. Mm. I can't. I mean, in private with people, you can maybe get to an edgy bit of comedy, but even then, you can't. You can't make mistakes yeah. with staff because there's been so many problems in parliament. So. You know the the way that you and I are joking with each other on the drop zone. Say, yeah, I just yeah, can't yeah. get away with that in the office or, or whatever. Yeah, I just no, can't understand. because, um, particularly, I mean, I forget. I'm this guy who rides a motorbike and jumps out of airplanes and likes to have fun like anybody else. But once you're a member of parliament, you, as they say, have to recognise your power. Other people mm-hmm. perceive you as a member of parliament, possibly even an influential one. Do you think like yeah. you feel restrained sometimes? Oh, totally. Of that? Yeah, of course I do. I can't be as funny as I would like to be. Sometimes. You see, I would really struggle with that because also, like one of the greatest things, what I what I start understanding more and more about comedians and stand-up comedy, comedians are almost like politicians because we talk about things what people are afraid of talking about, yeah, and like we bringing all these things, and it's almost like if someone get offended, whatever, it's you know, it's a humor. Mm-hmm. But also nowadays, it's getting worse and worse. Like the comedy is getting so PC. And then there's so many comedians are like getting cancelled, not getting work anymore because they're too pe- they're too out of that and too mm, rude yeah. and whatever. Mm. And that is getting really really crazy. So now the last thing what I heard they start doing stand up for on- uh, in places like OnlyFans, like. Anyone knows what OnlyFans is? I don't know. Maybe you, you haven't heard of it. Um, <laughs> OnlyFans is uh, a it, subscription service for adult content. I'm exa- guessing exactly. Yeah. So, um, and what I'm what I'm trying to say it's like it's getting so bad. You get so uh, censored. Uh, censorship is so high in like for YouTube and all these kind of places that you can't even like joke around things anymore. So they go to things like uh, OnlyFans where people actually pay money and then so they can get, see. Yeah. It. So there's a comedy club. What's it called? I only just went there with um, Comedy Unleashed or something. But there's a comedy place uh, where they aim for, 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 for free speech. Where is this? Oh, now you've asked me and I'm on your show. I'm going no, to no, send you. Where is it? It's in London. In London. Which part? Oh, don't ask me this now. I'm going to have to come back to you and give you the link. But pe- I was going to like, Friends of mine. Yeah, yeah. Friends of mine like Dominic, Dominic Frisbee uh, perform there. And he he's very, very good. But it was interesting watching comedians there because offstage is so very, very serious and focused like mm-hmm. any other performer. Yeah. Getting ready to be funny. Sometimes not- it's annoying, to be honest. Like, I, I, I haven't done comedy so long, but I know some of them, my co- comedian friends are just, they are some of them boring. They are they're very serious all the time. Yeah. I was like, well, I think to be truly funny, then. you can sometimes be quite a depressive character. Can't yeah, you? And, so and like Robin Williams was a depressed, depressed, wasn't he? So um, yeah, but uh, yeah, so I suppose as a politician, I can't be as funny as I would like, mm. um, which might sound a strange thing to do. But the weird thing as a politician is sometimes you do have to do a bit of stand up. Mm. So if you give an after dinner speech and it's uh, I don't know the Rotary Club, which are lovely guys, pillars of our community, yeah. they don't want me to turn up and make a. A, 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 boring, a, a monotonous. boring, monotonous political speech. Mm. They typically the pattern I normally use is a Churchillian one, where you say something um, witty, 
mm-hmm. then something informative, and mm-hmm. then you finish with something emotive. Yeah, so if yeah. you go witty, uh, informative, emotive, and that works really well in so many different circumstances, and you can vary the length of it. So if I'm doing an after-dinner speech where everyone's had a drink and it's for the Rotary Club or Round Table or something, then I'll stand up and really extend the witty bit. Mm-hmm. And you just you want to make them laugh. Yeah, and they've yeah, got to yeah. be laughing. It's got to be funny. It's got to be touching. But it's not got. It's got to be not so rude that you're ashamed when they repeat it because they will. That an MP said mm-hmm. the thing. So and then do something informative and then something emotive and those speeches as long as they're heartfelt and well meant they almost always land really well and I've had a couple of occasions where I was definitely more successful than the stand up mm-hmm. comedian who was on after me because um, sometimes stand up comedians they try too hard and go too far I remember one of them making a sexual joke that it just wasn't funny for the audience mm-hmm. that he had he had a lot of straight up guys um, not I don't not making judgment of their sexuality but no you know i mean like earnest people of mm-hmm. high moral standards and uh, the joke wasn't appropriate to them and that was definitely an evening where i was the funny one um yeah. and the subsequent year they just didn't book a stand-up comedian i was the comedy you see that one of the biggest problems with that is some comedians they have a bad um feel for the audience Mm. So they like they have some some of the couple of, like best bits they have like best uh, sets and they're like okay I'm just gonna go with this one or with that one yeah um, before I did uh, stand up before I did public speaking back in Latvia I used to MC parties and events yeah I did uh, I did them seeing up to like two three thousand people events like big wow. uh, corporate uh, sport days uh, they call the sport days I remember one of my last ones was yeah it's about three thousand people and I was replacing the guy who's a celebrity uh, he's like a new sh- uh, new show host. And he would be doing this for five years, and then he couldn't make it, or he got sick. And this agency I worked for, they literally, you're the only one we have. Everyone else is busy. <laughs> Can you do it? I'm like, sure. And I turn up, and I was like, oh my god, there's like thousands of people, and I need to open the uh, the um, uh, event with uh, kind of a little speech and introducing uh, the uh, uh, minister of uh, art or something like that. And straight on the bat, I mispronounce uh, that person's name. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I done kind of thing. And then uh, people were coming over like, who, who are you? Like, we, we have the celebrity guy always. What? Yeah. And then in three days, every day, I just kind of got better and better and better. And the last day they came over, some of them came over and said, like, oh, you're actually better than the other guy. Yeah, great. But, but yeah, anyways, like, uh, so when you do these kind of very um, improvised uh, kind of hosting things, you try to understand what is the audience. You try to feel the audience. But with a stand-up, very often people come with the prepared stuff and they struggle yeah. just to deviate from it. Intellectual agility in these things really matters, yeah. right? And, and Because you're, if, if you're dealing with people in relationships, just reading the minutiae of the room, people sometimes say it on social media, particularly if they don't like what I've said, I read the room. You can't read the room on social media, but you absolutely can read the room yeah. if you're in front of an audience you can see. And, yeah, so a, a lot of that comes up in politics. The intellectual agility, we're talking about... Um, taking interventions if you've got intellectual agility and you can adjust to the circumstances that they arise you can always take an intervention i I guess it's like being heckled if you're a comedian Mm, mm, if you've got the intellectual agility to catch the uh, heckle and turn it into something funny at their expense right yeah 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 yeah. it's 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 an interesting art and uh, and that's why i've I've been fascinated by this uh, since i was a little kid and i I love to be on a stage since i was uh, again a little kid i don't know there's something about you know, there's expression when someone is a uh, attention whore. Yeah, are you an attention? <laughs> you're, whore? you're not allowed to say that. Oh, you just <laughs> said it. Um, but uh, I don't even think that that's the thing. It's it's something to do with this is the way I feel the most comfortable with approaching people. 
I don't yeah. know. I don't because there's this appeal of expressing yourself in front of people, and and I love the idea that I can make people laugh. Yeah, yeah. So it's you're just, a very gregarious guy, aren't you? Or is that just a front? Um, I have my moments. I think now I'm getting more pickier, and like uh, before that, I was just whatever it is. I just ma- want to make people laugh. Yeah. And now I'm just more kind of even doing stand up only for two years. I already know oh that venue, the people there usually, but also like kind of. But before that, I would be very excited and I would be doing it. Um, yeah, I don't know. But you like to entertain people. What is the essence of being a performer? What is because I think in politics you get people who like me, maybe like me sometimes. You get a bit very focused on policy and ideas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and lose the element of performance. And you get somebody like Boris Johnson, who's an amazing performer, but he's ended up not. You know, he's, you know, he's not finished brilliantly as Prime Minister for various other reasons. But this, um, what is the essence of performance to actually land something successfully? Because you're a thoughtful guy. You've got an MBA. You're, you know what you're doing. I think it's, I'm, I feel like a vampire. I, I live from the energy of when people laugh. It's like when you laugh and you have a good time, I have a good time. Yeah. And it's weird. It's like since I was a kid, in a class, I wasn't the class clown. But I would always kind of try to wiggle in that teacher would laugh, have a good time. Very often you see these teachers, they're tired of their days, like they yeah. this monotonous thing every day, the same kids. Some of them you see they're pissing the teacher off. And, yeah. and then it's almost like I want to brighten their life. I want to just make them feel a little bit better. Yeah. And, uh, and that's been through all my life. And this is the funny one. In a high school, basically, because I always would be chatting, I always would be like, you know, joking around, whatever. Teacher, my head teacher, she had a, uh, this um, uh, way of uh, strategy. Uh, so she, she would sit, uh, send me right in front and a radius of three meters around me. No one would be sitting. All the kids would be <laughs> further away and would be sitting right in front. And that's how she would make sure that I don't communicate with anyone. Because before that, she thought, oh, I'm going to put the most uh, like uh, kind of a, a calm, silent girl next to me. Yeah. And then, then, I, then I would shut and up. And you turned her into the... <laughs> Literally three days later, she was chatting her ass off. And my teacher was like, oh my God. <laughs> what have I done? Yeah. And then I thought, okay, I, I, got, um, I got accepted to university in Latvia. Uh, uh, business administration and which which was the biggest faculty at the time we had about 300 kids in in one room it was just yeah. mental and i thought okay so before in high school i was always told off i was always singled out not anymore because there's yeah. so many so many of us two weeks later the first thing the professor says when she comes in Rinars, shut up <laughs> 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 but they let you finish the finish the class, right? They, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, like it's just because I, for some reason, I would have people around me. We were chatting, laughing, and whatever. <laughs> and I just, you know, love that idea. I did see this happen on the drop zone. Yeah, it well, did. Yeah, you turned up and suddenly. Everything was everything was brighter. This is why we were accused of having a bromance. Hey, it, everything was brighter and more fun. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's just the way we are. We we have that spark. Everyone has different, you know, qualities. The, you can't have too many of me. You know, because it then goes too crazy. We need some someone who is more introvert, uh, yeah. someone who does other stuff, and just to have that balance, I guess. I've got a very serious and important question to ask you. Wait. Say it again. I have a very serious and important question to ask you. <laughs> go. How did you get into skydiving? Ooh, here you go. Uh, skydiving was on the list for a while, and then on my t- 30... Something birthday, I thought, oh, I would give a somebody's gonna be my present, and I went to Madrid. And if, funny enough, 
I was supposed to be jumping right day before my birthday, but we flew up and all of a sudden the weather changed and it was too windy for me to jump. We flew down and then I would jump next day, which was my birthday. Um, why it was listen since I started doing stunts, it was always about tr just trying new things and yeah. like the uh, the uh, uh, skydiving was just was there and and um, it, being a stunt performer, it's like yeah you do things for fun, but that could be used for your work. So that's how yeah. I got into horse riding. It's also like doing trick riding, um, uh, like bike uh, bike stuff. Um, but yeah, skydiving I was just like I need to tick this on my list, and uh, I started doing it and I just couldn't stop. How many, how many jumps you done there? Hundred. One zero zero. Press a button. Been, press a button. Wait, it's yeah. been one zero zero. Yeah, because because you you left and uh, then that uh, did you? Left? I left you. I'm sorry. Yeah, you did. Yeah, it was supposed to be my three hundredth, and, and yes, that, right. my next jump after I left was three hundred, but I had to go. Yeah, yeah. So you did your hundredth. I did my hundredth. Landing was one of the worst landings I ever had. Yeah. Uh, but I did it. Did you wear clothes? Did you remember that I get banned twice? Two days I in was, a row. I wasn't going to raise it, but we're on, we're on camera. You got banned twice, two days in a row. Yeah, two days in a row. So for people to understand, I didn't do anything like whatever horrible. I I just landed. Uh, as I would land, um, I would just did it wrong. Like I was uh, uh, the last landing the wrong was direction or with the wind. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I remember I thought because the, it was almost no wind, and I thought, oh whatever, I'm just going to go with wind, and. Um, and I slid on my butt for about ten meters in this in this hay uh, in this straw whatever. And I remember I just lied down. I was like, "Oh my god! I hope no one saw it." And I just poked my head out. <laughs> anyone see me? And I see the the, the, the instructor is oh already like dear. walking towards me. Renars, you're banned again. <laughs> again, oh dear. I was like, yes. But you got to your hundredth jump. Yeah, I got to my hundredth jump. Amazing. I'm very very happy with that. And um, skydiving, I think. Right now, I'm in the place where, like, uh, so for those who don't do skydiving, um, if you want to be serious about it, you want to buy your own canopy, your own rig, which you do have. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, I think I'm not passionate enough to get there yet. Uh, maybe eventually, because also it's quite expensive, uh, even though I could afford it, but I would be like, I'm not going to be jumping enough. And now I'm going back to Indonesia, where, where uh, in Bali, there's not much skydiving going on anyways. Yeah. If that would be the case, maybe then I would consider it. Yeah. Um, but um, no, skydiving is so much fun. Uh, but my landings are just now when I got back, it was just getting worse and worse. It's like it's I don't know what's going on. But that was three years out of practice. So yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of stuff. Oh, uh, I absolutely love it. I've done uh, fourteen jumps in the last two weeks. Yeah, because the question goes now. Oh, so what about you, Steve? Yeah, how yeah, did that's you get right. Into yeah, it? well, I got into it. Yeah. <laughs> no, do you want me to tell you how I got into it? <laughs> Please, <laughs> can't wait. Tell us. Yeah, tell us. <laughs> So I was working, I, in fact, I did my first jump when I was university just because it seemed fun. And then I did a course of 14 at the, in the Air Force. Uh, but then I left it for years. And it was one of those moments where I'd been working in a startup and everything was too exhausting. It was electronic financial reporting. The market wasn't ready. And I was knocking myself out. I was working with Japan in the morning and San Francisco in the evening, which sounds glamorous until you realize what that means for the length of your day. And I was mm -hmm. exhausted. And I just reached a point where I thought, this, this, this can't go on. I've got to stop, got to take a break, I've got to regroup. So, you know, great sorrow, left the company. And I thought, I'm going to take six months off. And I did a driving course, a fast driving course, performance driving course. Uh, where did you I, do the driving course? It's, uh, it was um, 
with a guy based in Lincolnshire. So we did some stuff off the highway and some on the highway. Uh, a guy called Hugh Noblet, who uh, had a master driver's course. I don't right. think he's running it anymore. But but Hugh would train uh, police officers and special forces and stuff. So it was a real privilege to get to train with him. Yeah. Was it like involved some precision driving as well? Like yeah, it's, it's about roadcraft. So like, like trying to drive like a police officer would drive, basically. But obviously you have to drive within mm-hmm. the law. But... Uh, yeah. If you want to get into that more a little bit, there's in Ireland, there's uh, one stunt, uh, stunt guy who uh, teaches courses as well. And most of the stunt guys go train there. I haven't done it, but as far as I've seen, it's really cool. Like just like all I'd this, love to do that. like a parkings yeah. with a with a handbrake and you just slide in between yeah, yeah. two cars and things like that. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Uh, but it wasn't about stunt driving. It's about driving to oh, the okay. highest possible standard. There you go. Uh, so it's probably, um, it's probably the highest standard driving you can do. It's the entry standard of something called the High Performance Club. Mm-hmm which we don't talk about. Um, and, uh, you know, it'd be like Rosper Gold as the basic entry standard, broadly speaking, and then you try and improve from there. So I did that course, and that was amazing, really fulfilling, and then went to learn to skydive. And I was so exhausted, I couldn't do it. I got there, I thought, I'm just not ready. And I went to Portugal, it was Madrid, the same place we were skydiving. And uh, I went to Portugal and just chilled for the weekend and had a nice time. Portugal or Spain? Yeah, I drove to Portugal oh, from okay. Madrid. I oh, was okay. in my car and um, I drove over to Lisbon and just chilled for a weekend, went back. I did four jumps and I started spinning and I, I couldn't face it. And I left. They thought they'd never see me again because it was you know, it was bad. I delayed it and then yeah, yeah, dropped yeah. out after four. I went to the wind tunnel and learned to fly my body. Mm-hmm. And I went back and I just completely aced it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wind Once tunnel you, makes huge difference. Wind tunnel is so amazing. There's a place called Empuria Brava and the Costa Brava, which has a, a wind tunnel on site. I'd recommend anybody do a tandem to see if you like skydiving. Mm-hmm. Then go to the wind tunnel for 10 minutes. And once you've been in the wind tunnel for 10 minutes and can fly your body, get stable on heading, you'll just ace yeah. straight through an AFF course and without any frightening moments apart from the obvious jumping out of an aeroplane. So I got into it really as a way of trying to refresh myself mm. from being exhausted, almost like a one of several midlife crises, you know. And it How was many pr- you had of those? How many? Oh, at, at least three. I've had at least three. How explain me what do you mean and what do you think? Well, when I left the air force, I'd been bullied twice. It was unfortunate. I love being in the air force, but yeah, I was bullied. I know I don't. I don't stand. I don't stand for bullying now. But I got bullied twice in the air force, and I was told. while you were there. Yeah, yeah, and oh, I wow. so I left the air force because they weren't going to give me the career I wanted. I'd been bullied, and that was a bit of a crisis moment. Mm-hmm. Did an MSc, changed course, and then. Um, the next one was the one I just described, where I was again just exhausted through work and. Um, Tried again, and I think uh, you know. Just recently, it's been a tough time. Mm. I've spent seven years um, at the centre of great political events, whether it's been Brexit or then COVID. I led the COVID, uh, well, deputy chair of the COVID recovery uh, group with Mark Harper, the chairman. But I, I, he wouldn't mind me saying I founded it, and then asked him, "Would he please chair it?" He chaired it with great skill and aplomb, and I'm gr- gl- glad to have worked with him. But um, you know, set set up that that thing, and then the net zero work I'm doing, and it puts me at the heart of all these great controversies all the time do you know what it's i don't mind admitting that's that's hard going mm. get a lot of hate a lot of people who are just frightened whether it's covid or net zero they think it's life and death um possibly because it is but it i suppose that's a common crossover theme there is that the skydiving's life and death and what you have mm. to do is understand what you're doing make a plan do the right thing at the right time and make a success of it and real life is serious and this is something i think we forget it is possible to live a quite light and easy life, but actually real life's very, very serious. Things go terribly wrong. And we, we, 
I think we need politicians, we need a public who are willing to face up to life as it actually is. So like Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this and gets very unpopular for it. But we've got to face up to life being a struggle. I mean, almost mm. everybody we meet is going to be struggling. So the last few months for me, um, you know, after seven years of being at the centre of events have been pretty tough. But I've you know, been, been fine. But that's why there's the facial hair, the stubble beard, and that's why there's the necklaces. Cause I, and th- th- so these are about remembering that I'm a fast catamaran sailor. I picked these up in Greece. And the necklace is this, well, Christian, obviously. But this one's, uh, main, as you know, main parachute release pin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, this is very stereotypical, and I don't care. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think I saw it. I straight away said, like, can you come, come up with something more original? Yeah, it's so stereotypical. <laughs> well, so just tell what it is, and so don't, don't step away from the microphone. You're oh, sorry, again. I'm <laughs> stepping away from the microphone. So this is a... This is, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a main parachute release pin. You throw the drogue. The drogue pulls out the strap. The strap then turns this pin upright, pulls it out, and the parachute comes out. And it's very, very stereotypical to find a 50 But how often people who never done skydiving, they know what it is? No, oh, they, almost never. Yeah, they ask me what no it idea, is. Yeah. What's the pendant? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the joys of wearing it, actually, is it's just reminding me every day that I really am a skydiver, and that means something to me. Mm. And I really am a fast catamaran sailor, and that means something to me. After years off, I went to Greece because we've all had to like try and recover our lives after COVID, right? So I went, I had a skiing holiday, then I went uh, sailing, not bully for me, nice for me, glad I could afford it, and then did some skydiving where I met you. But to go back to sailing after years off and find I could just get in a very fast boat in a mm. very strong wind and just do it, it was so fulfilling. So that's kind of what's going on at the moment with the facial hair. My wife on the skiing holiday said, you know, every time we're away, you grow a stubble beard. Why don't you just keep it? Mm. So I have kept it, and it's controversial. People don't like to see an MP with a stubble beard. Really? Yeah, it's weird. People Why can't it be your, like, like your style choice? Like, what's the problem with that? Well, it is my style choice, and I'm insisting on it. But this is one of the things about being an MP. People think they're entitled mm. to impose on you their mould of how you should be. We yeah. all get this from yeah, people, yeah. right? So, um, but yeah, I suppose if you want to count them three midlife crises really but this one is this one's just about saying you know what this is who i am mm. and you can get over it um i'm not an absolutely straight laced do you think we need li- a midlife crisis or crisis in general i think that it's crises are inevitable um and that's how you deal with them and move on that improves who you are yeah. i think that they're just like when people say like oh failure is so bad failure is necessary mm. failure is good we should be comfortable with being human Yeah. And that's tough, particularly as a politician. People will pick holes on you if you mm. failed or you've had to pick yourself up. Or if they see you in a like a stripping strip bar, stripping in a strip yeah. in a gay club, you just yeah. can't go like gay club and just hang out. I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, but you know, these days people can't judge your sexuality at least, so yeah. it doesn't. You know, they shouldn't be judging that it was a gay club. But they might judge the stripping, but even then, they shouldn't judge the stripping as long as you're doing it because you want to do it. Mm. But um, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, three midlife crises, I suppose. <laughs> just said the yeah. stripping. How do I get off the stripping? Yeah, the stripping is fine. We're talking about like stripping <laughs> again, but why? How do I stop talking about stripping? This doesn't happen. <laughs> well, this, this never happens with Andrew Neil or Kay Burley. Kay Burley has never asked me about the stripping. Oh my god! Because I used to be a stripper. That's why I can easily talk about this. Yeah. And I, you see, like that, that's why it was interesting. Uh, Steve was asking me before, like, so what do you think we're going to talk about? We're just going to talk about anything. And that's the beauty. And I think that's what the podcast should be about. Yeah, you've done so much. I mean, I, it's incredible listening to you. I, you know, the gymnastics and the stunt performing and the stripping and the MBA. It's a lot of stuff to pack yeah, into. One of, my, one of my last jobs was uh, I was trade marketing coordinator for three countries. 
Uh, I was representing a company called the the Kraft Foods, which is a huge American company. Yeah. I would go from one place to another and like just talk to all, go to all these meetings, and and I was like twenty four, twenty five. If you met me then, you would think I'm older than I'm now. Yeah, because I was just like, oh, serious, the laptop, oh, like uh, yeah, spreadsheets, yeah, yeah. Uh, numbers, uh, and then that's where I was like, is this my life? That's where I start getting all of these yeah. thoughts, and and then from nowhere, like my my friend comes from, he's like, let's go to Canada, let's go to Canada. So what did you do when you got to Canada first? Well, first of all, the main reason why I was so, uh, so it was so easy for me to leave was uh, in 2008, 2009, the economy went to total shambles. Yeah. It's a, such a British expression, shambles. shambles. I want to say to total shit. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and the first industry what suffered was the uh, construction industry because they, they, they were uh, relying on the loans from the banks, right? So for people to, to buy for the future properties and that time i worked for a swedish company who um again i was representing th- uh, th- uh working in three countries representing them in latvia lithuania estonia and i was in charge of uh this product w- which was uh made for architects and designers so architects and designers obviously will feel straight away that construction goes down they don't have work so straight away that that kind of didn't work yeah then uh, also had my own business then that went uh, that also was kind of related to construction and uh, I just got my master's degree, and uh, I was with this girl for four years, and uh, I was like, so what are we doing? Are we getting married or whatever? I'm like 24. It's like, there's no way I can marry now. And I just kind of said to her, something uh, something is not right. And she's like, oh, you don't love me anymore. And then she, she ran away, and I was like, no job, no business, got my master's, no girlfriend, no mortgage. And then a friend of mine just says, like, let's go away. I'm like, let's go. Let's do it, yeah. Yeah, because I needed to kind of get away, change environment anyways. And it was crazy. I had this crazy gut feeling that I this, this something has to change. Yeah. And that's how the, the cannabis So you, you, you live this life now, which I think most people would be very, very jealous of. It feels like an Instagram life. <laughs> you're doing, you're making movies. You met Tom Cruise. You've y- talked about working with Samuel L. Jackson. So you're making movies. You're in big, big Hollywood productions. You're talking about some of the biggest, you know, The Bond and The Mission Impossible. Yeah. yeah. You're doing stand-up in Bali. It sounds like a dream life. Is <laughs> it a dream life? I think, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm probably in the best place in my life so far. And that's, I've been working really hard to get there. Um, making c- c- certain, like, strong decisions. Even yesterday I was hanging out, actually, with my ex-girlfriend. And um, and I left to Bali, and then we stopped because we couldn't see each other. Like she she stayed here, and that was a kind of strong choice. But I knew deep inside me that if I wouldn't make that choice, I would be regretting that I wouldn't go back to Bali, did the stand up, which I really yeah. love doing, and all those things. Um, it's it is almost every time to gain something great, you need to sacrifice certain things. And I think I'm I'm getting very comfortable with that, or already being comfortable with that and that's the reason why I could get in those places mm. because when I was 24 thinking about I had all the businesses everything and I had this amazing girlfriend and we would were considering that's it this is this is it let's marry have kids but I'm like nope that's not it yeah so you ra- you radically departed from the lifestyle you were Pretty on you're on a very very normal sort of yeah spreadsheets but even then it wasn't very normal because i had my business i worked for a big corporation um i was hosting events and parties on on, on weekends yeah i was so busy and it was like literally there's like my girlfriend was like we you you see me at night you you never have time together and there was some kind of weird thing as well because i was trying to chase my sister in a sense so she's five years older and her 
achievements were really great. And so both of us, we come from like alcoholic family where we're like, we were neglected and uh, we became very independent very quickly. We knew that no one else is going to do it if we're not going to do it. And even though it, it was quite, quite, I wouldn't say sad, but it was like challenging childhood. I can't uh, express more ad- like kind of, thanking my ba- my my upbringing because otherwise I wouldn't be driven as I, the way I am mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. because I remember like I, w- I would go and say like why other kids have these f- fantastic parents and they look after them and then and all we need to do whether we deal with the drunk drunken father or when he's not drinking he's like bossing us around we need to do chores and work all the time on the, on yeah. the farm yeah but now I look back best I, I wish it would be even more. <laughs> yeah, well, that's really interesting. So there'd be people... I mean, I suppose... I mean, my parents uh, were very, very loving and looked after me, but they got divorced, and that was a huge shock. Still with mm. me. And I suppose maybe there'll be people watching this, hearing you tell that story, uh, who'd be thinking about the things they went uh, through in life. And... Um, yeah, maybe it will have real meaning for people who think actually the way I respond to the things that happen in my life will make make or break me. And um, well, that, we'll that's the thing. What I'm afraid of, like whether where, how close I was to the breaking point. Yeah, because there will be people who are broken by their lives, and yeah. you've got to find out ways to pick them up and put them back together. Mm-hmm. Maybe going skydiving is the way to do it. Hey, skydiving! Um, so yeah, skydiving. That's one thing. Then uh, bikes, that's another thing, which I kind of, those two things I know pretty much, but I don't know much about your sailing stuff. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so my, my I got into sailing the same way as the bikes. My dad taught me. He taught me much of the best oh, stuff in, in life. Yeah, I mean, one of my earliest memories of life is jumping up and down on the Kickstarter of a Triumph Bonneville in the garage. I still see it in my mind's eye now. So dad uh, sailed. He couldn't swim, but he sailed. Mm-hmm. Um, taught me to sail. And... Um, yeah, I bought a boat, gosh, year 2002 probably, started sailing with my wife, fast cash and ran. It was great fun, but it wasn't fast enough, so I went from a Dart 18 to a Hobie Tiger. The Hobie Tiger is awesome. So 18 foot long, uh, three sails, two trapezes. You, you'd be great because you're fit and you've got some body mass, you've got plenty of strength to haul on the heavy ropes. Mm-hmm. You'd be an amazing fast cash and run sailor. Definitely something in the future to, to yeah. try it out. And I think I told you that I did like wind uh, windsurfing yeah. and just started like uh, two years ago. Um, and, and I thought, oh, it's just easy. Look at this. It's boring. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's so much to it. The, the balance. and the Well, people, if you can find the videos on my Instagram channel, some of these boats are violently powerful when the wind gets mm-hmm. up. So there's a place called Wild Wind in Greece. And they have a thing called a catabatic wind. So there's a bay with two two hillsides. The one as the sun goes around, this hill gets hot. This hill is cold. Mm-hmm. And the wind moves from an onshore breeze to roaring across the bay, and it will go four, six, seven, eight, and upwards. And as the as the day builds, the uh, more experienced sailors come out and sail. And then eventually it's too powerful for even the most experienced, and it just goes to wind surface. But for somebody like me, I can have a nice easy morning just remind myself how to sail in the sea breeze and then get into something really exciting. And, and this is only in Greece? This y- particular place, Wild Wind, is about the only place in the world where a, a serious sailor who knows what they're doing can go and sail serious boats. Most places they give you horrible rotor-moulded plastic tubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at Wild Wind, they've got some incredible boats. The Hobie Tiger is... 
I'm glad I owned one, but that's really good. But there's a thing called the Hobie 14. They call it the Witch. Mm. It can capsize forwards. It can capsize backwards, which I did several times, as well as left and right. And they capsize hard and fast when you get it wrong. If, they, if you get hit by a lot of wind and you dig the holes in, the boat will cartwheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very, very exciting sailing, and I absolutely love it. But there's a theme here, the motorbikes, the sailing, the skydiving. It's going fast, high risk, and managing those risks, and that's what mm. I like doing. That's why yeah. I should be a stuntman. You should be a stuntman. What other, what, so I've got three. What, what are the six things you did to make yourself okay, a stuntman? Okay, so first of all, for uh, it used to be like skydiving as a miscellaneous skill, but you have to be like a really high-level skydiver. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I don't know how many dives were those. So that's not counted anymore in the British Stunt Register, yeah. even though they would look up, oh, that's great that you have it, so for right. future, whatever. Yeah. Uh, bike would be most like that would be motocross or like uh, a pro, um, the racing bikes when they have like the, uh, yeah. the supermoto. Um, and then sailing also could be maybe considered as a like uh, again miscellaneous, but Sk- it's, yeah. it's great to have the skill. Yeah. So the six skills what I chose was uh, uh, high diving. So you jump from ten meters uh, yeah. in the water, and you do like eleven different elements like backflips, front flips, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually training right next to Tom Tom Bailey, Tom Daly or Bailey Daly Daly. Daly. Yeah. Oh, you know. Yeah, I was like right there in the uh, in Stratford, and uh, right next to the Westfield, there's this place called Aquatic Center. Yeah. And uh, he, I remember, I would go dive my diving was horrible so I just like tumble there fall like big splat and then he comes with his little shorts and he jumps in perfect yeah. and he kind of looks at me like oh. <laughs> um, but you can say you trained with Tom Daly yeah well I was Strictly next, next platform yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the same building with him yeah um, and so that's uh, high diving then swimming and when uh, when I say swimming people oh what's you know so easy yeah the, the thing is, like, you need to do four strokes uh, in certain speeds. Like, uh, you need to do fully clothed swimming, uh, underwater swimming, and all that kind of stuff. And you need to do all of that in about 50 minutes. Right. And then you pass the test. And literally, if you ask any stunt performer if they've done a swimming test, they're going to say that that was the hardest probably test out of all of them. Huh. Um, people get out, they pass out, get sick, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, so swimming, high diving, those were the two ones which I had the biggest issues with. Mm-hmm. Never h- did high diving in my life, never did swimming properly. Uh, gymnastics was quite easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, then trampolining was quite easy. So on a, a big trampoline, again, you do all those elements. So that's four. Then one martial art, you choose whichever. I used to do karate. I represented Latvia in karate for a while. But then it was difficult to transfer all my credits. Can you just press the button there? You represented Latvia in karate for a while. That's got to go. Yes, there we go. I should have the buttons over here. Yeah. Um, I was um, competing in like European championships and stuff like that. So, um, and uh, But I chose as a martial art judo because I was always fascinated by judo. Mm-hmm. And someone told me like it's quite quick to get the grading because we need to get at least brown belt. Mm-hmm. And, and I chose judo. judo. And the last one was cliff climbing. So those are six skills that I chose. And cliff climbing also was very easy. It's like yeah. just going to a lake district and enjoy the view. Yeah. Uh, and then you can choose, uh, again, scuba diving. I couldn't afford it. It was like three, 4,000 pounds. Uh, Raleigh driving was about 8,000 pounds. Uh, there's no way I can afford that. And horse riding also was quite expensive. So yeah. those were the three other options. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much it. But at the time when I was qualifying, if you are like high, uh, uh, world level um, uh, mot- motocross rider, you, they would cho- take that as a, one of the disciplines. Right. Um, things like that. So, so yeah. if you're a 51 year old who wants to become a stuntman, actually, it's quite a big deal. I've got to do the trampolining, I've got to do the gymnastics. 
when we talked about it, I think I just said like there are two ways to do it. Yeah. I just explained to you one way, which yeah. is uh, get on BSR. Yeah. Other way is you basically just know um, or get familiar with some stunt coordinators. Yeah. And then you show what the skill you have. Uh-huh. And let's say in in this case, in your case, would be uh, they're looking for a stunt double uh, for this actor who you look very similar to, right. who would need to whether it would be bike riding, whether skydiving, or whether it would be a sailing. Right. Um, and then then there's no questions. You can do the sailing in this crazy speed and with this specific boat. Yeah. They're like, okay, we we take you because you have the skill. Right. Right. And right. then there's no question whether you are in BSR, or you're not in BSR. Whoever has right. the skill. And that's the thing, like especially for specific ethnicities, like there's not a, not enough black people on a, on a, on a British Stunt Register. So whenever they need production, so you don't have to be on BSR, you're gonna get the job. Right. Also, same thing with women, because there's right, not right, enough right, women right. Um, and uh, like other Asian Asian uh, ethnicities, so things like that. Right, but right. For me, who is representing Caucasian, my height, whatever, it's about 300. I need to compete with. Right. And for me, it was the biggest main reason why I was getting jobs. It was because I speak Russian and they need bad Russian. Yeah, guys. yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Come here. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very good accent. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, that's like a Borat thing. Okay, can we show uh, your boat stuff? Is it from this account? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. keep scrolling down. Go, sailing videos. Okay, which one we got? That one will do with two of us on that one, yeah. boat. Yeah, that's a Hobie 16. with. Lo- this is loads and loads of wind. Hobie 16. This is a nice lady called Swantja who's a German lady, and uh, I liked crewing for her because she was transitioning from monohulls to uh, catamarans. And so for her, I was a great crew because I would do what I was told. I was glad to be a crew, but I knew how to sail the boat. So, mm-hmm. And being heavier is better as crew. So what you can see, if you look at the water, look how fast we're going there. That is fast. How fast is it? Uh, it's probably about oh, no, 20 knots, maybe. Oh, don't tell me knots. Well, 20, no 25, 20, 25 miles an hour, something like that, that which on fast. the water is fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can see she's spilling quite a lot of wind, mm-hmm. and the hull is still in. But ideally, what she'd do is pull that sheet in even harder. Here she goes, and try and get the hull out. But you can see we're, we're caning across the water there. Mm. So yeah, these are nice, and there's um, there's a couple of capsize videos on there as well. But there we go. Yeah, which she say Does she save it? Yeah, wow. she saves it. Yeah, it's good. And it's then we so go cool. capsizing in the other way. That's oh yeah, this is when we broke the bow. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Nice capsize. Wow. But that yeah, that's what cool. happens. You sheet in a long way and capsize one way, and then you have to you you, sh- you sheet out again. And um, I love the camera work. It looks so cool. Yeah, that's the Insta Insta three sixty. It's such an amazing. That, where did you put it on a sail? I put it on the uh, tiller bar. Oh, okay. So you can see the other rudder down there in the water. So it's yeah. got an extension on it, and I put it on the on the rudder bar. And bar, um, bar. I don't know what those things well, are. Well, the bar that steers the boat. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, a really cool camera because it captures everything. Yeah. I've forgotten what I put in this video. But, again, we're going quite fast here. Uh, this is Vasiliki Bay. And you can see... Look at you just chilling. I love I it. I am just chilling. Yeah, it's easy. What kind of muscles would you involve there? Or it's a lot, not much. a lot core, of core. A lot of core, yeah. yeah. So, obviously, hauling on the ropes, you want need a lot of arm and shoulder strength, which I... I I know it doesn't look like it to you, but I have been working out. I've got bigger arms than I've had. Yes, thank you. I have been working out for this holiday. But, you know, you spend hours heaving on these. Look at that hull coming out. Nice. So that's what you really want. You want to get the boat with the hull just out of the water, which is when it's its yeah. fastest. So, yeah, you lose a lot of muscles on that, that rope she's holding. That's the main sheet. It's a lot mm-hmm. of weight on that. Look at the, how she's flying the hull. That's ideal. And that's the speed, again, about 25 uh, miles per hour. Yeah, it's, it's only a bit less than that. 25 is about the top end. Yeah, uh, yeah, much yeah. beyond that, they become uncontrollable. 
But um, yeah, there's a few videos like this. But that's a that's a good upwind um, uh, course there, quite fast. Nice. But yeah, it's fun when you get on these boats. It looks like we're just chilling and it's easy, but and it is when you know how to do it. But if you haven't sailed very oh. much, these boats uh, are very very powerful. They're very very fast, and they. That's the bike. interesting one. Like when people see visually certain things, they kind of say, "Oh, this is impressive," or "This mm-hmm. is not impressive." Mm-hmm. It's insane. There's this one move which called the cork uh, when you're doing tricking in gymnastics. When you basically, as you kick your leg up and you twist as well. Uh-huh. So we have this one guy. His name is Matteo, and I'm actually going to have him on a on a podcast soon. He's 39 years old. He's the oldest guy who in the world who can do triple cork so instead of spinning once you spin three times around which is insane and um, he basically people who see it they can't say the difference between double cork or triple cork and it's a big deal yeah it's a huge deal because it's like just insane how fast you have to spin and then uh, and then he does just a normal backflip people think that's more impressive it's um, it's basically it's like if you haven't tried if you haven't tried or attempt to this it's difficult for you to uh, kind of appreciate it yeah, yeah, you know. What yeah. are the um, most common accidents, and what how people get get hurt with this? Uh, well, you don't get hurt very often, thank goodness. But I suppose if people get hurt sailing, it's typically getting your fingers nipped in in around ropes and where they go through pulleys. Uh, with those boats, if you get a pitch pole, the boat will stop very very quickly as the as the hulls dig into the water. It stops mm-hmm. very very quickly, and if you've got the dagger boards up, you can run into the dagger boards, get some big bruises. I've still got a bruise on the air from. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but yeah, but like anything else, if you can avoid collisions and avoid um, capsizing it too violently, then you, it, it, there's no need. There's not really any need to get hurt sailing these boats. You get worn out because you're pulling on heavy ropes all day, but but they're not they're not really dangerous. But um, they would be if you didn't know what you're doing. Cool, cool. Which is totally opposite to motorbikes and skydiving, which are very dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> like especially I think. Would you say that uh, motorbikes is more dangerous than skydiving? I'm sure they are. I don't know the facts right now, but I'm sure they are. I've often thought that, um, you know, unfortunately, because other people don't see you, and that mo- motorbikes much be much, much more dangerous. Skydiving is actually very, very safe. Yeah, yeah. Practi- in practice. And it's so funny that like people have that misconception yeah. about think oh skydiving you crazy yeah you're crazy oh by the way talking about skydiving it was interesting when you mentioned then first you think you, you think you do you do tandem jump yeah right? i think if people are getting into it yeah, yeah so what i did when i went to sp- to do my course yeah. that's what i s- assumed is going to happen I thought I'm going to do ground school, which yeah. is the theory, and then afterwards you're going to get, get tandem, yeah. and then afterwards you're going to go by yourself. Going and I was like, <laughs> as soon as I finished ground school, I was like, uh, so who am I going to get attached to for tandem? I was like, attached to? No, you're not getting attached to. I was like, what do you mean? You're just going to jump up with instructors. It's like, what? Yeah. What if I like pass out and like this happens, you that don't happens? Don't do that. Yeah, and then the first thing, uh, listen, wait, 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 wait. Okay, show me how it looks and then show me the video and then you literally get hold by two people and yeah. they're going to make sure they're going to pull out and then you have a radio in your ear. Then all of a sudden I was like, realize actually this is so safe. Yeah. Um, so anyone out there who wants to do well, the course, just go for it. Yeah, and, um, and when, when we say safe, I mean they're safe and they're safe. It's Renaz and Steve version <laughs> of safe. But it, it, I, I've never done a tandem jump yeah me neither i've never done tandem but i would just say if people want to know whether they're likely to enjoy it yeah it's a good yeah. way to start i guess so it's just again if you can afford it because it's cost yeah quite, i'm afraid it is penny, it's two, yeah. about 230 pounds it's yeah because that that's like literally one third one fourth of the whole course which consists of eight jumps and even yeah. with the tunnel and all that yeah, stuff yeah yeah but a normal skydive is 25 pounds if you have your own rig if you've got your own rig yes if you've got your own yeah. rig and you pack for yourself just the jump ticket is yeah, yeah. 25 pounds and I d- this year uh, one of the guys what was his name the tall guy 
uh, younger kid with us, he was jumping. Blonde, tall guy, um, living in a van. Oh, I forgot oh. his name. Anyways. We're sorry. We're yeah, we're sorry. sorry we'd like to say we're sorry that we've forgotten your name. <laughs> a really cool guy. kid. And he basically, he said he just rented his rig. Yeah. And it doesn't cost that much, like a couple hundred a month or something. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. which is amazing. So I was actually, I didn't know about that. So you can mm. just go take that rig and do a couple months just go jumping. And that's fine. You don't need to buy your own, which is no, about it, five, six grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I bought mine ages ago, ages ago. And it's lasted me 10 years. Yeah. But... Unfortunately, because of politics, I haven't jumped as much as I should. I've done 310 jumps now in 10 years. Because of politics, years. literally. <laughs> yeah, literally, because of politics, <laughs> takes up all my time, yeah. <laughs> okay, this is the, uh, let's have another break. We, we, we've rambled up another hour. Have we How not? good are we? We have. Yes, I've enjoyed did. it so much. <laughs> oh, my God, where did you get this hat? This great hat. This is a lovely hat. I'm loving this hat so much. I'm so sorry that it has a curved peak, though. No, you need to take the shades off. You can, otherwise, you can't oh, see it. Yeah. okay. There you go. There you go. Hey, it's that's an a awesome hat. It's, it's my new favourite hat. Where did you get it? I got it from Uranus and I'm loving it. It's a very, very special thing to have a Renaz podcast hat. I can see me wearing this in the House of Commons. Sometimes I vote in my motorcycle gear before I go home. So I'm going to make a special effort now to make sure... Have I you go. actually ever been in your motorcycle gear in there? Yeah, of course, loads of times. Really? Loads of times. Even when you give speeches? No, not to give a speech. No, oh. you know, I would not get away with that, no. No, but uh, so people are allowed in there in sports kit. So if they're in the gym and the oh, bell goes, okay. they're allowed in there. And so I thought if you can wear sports kit, you can wear your bike gear. Yeah, yeah. But the, I think the speaker's starting to get a little bit tired of it now. Really? Because I take the piss, of course. Yeah. I, <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> of course I of walk course through the full house of comments. Okay, so the, the, uh, this segment is more about kind of, uh, I asked you for your three favourite books, you three favourite films, and three favourite people. Huge. Books... I got in a bit of trouble there. No. Whatever books you had them, uh, first two, I couldn't find them on the, um, on the uh, audio uh, version. Of what's the audio book app, uh, app I have? Yeah. And the third one I did find, I was listening to it. My head almost blew up. Because Brilliant. What were the three? The I can't remember. What the language was so complicated. <laughs> it was all politics. I was like, oh, my God. Don't make me listen to this rubbish. No. It was just like, it was like, try to... You know, make it nice. And st- it's just I can't even remember what I asked you to... Uh, before Before we uh, get into books, let's talk about films. Because right, one yeah, of I your films is Matrix. Oh, I love The Matrix. Hey, I love Matrix. The Matrix. Um, you're probably the third guest who had uh, Matrix as their, one of their favorite films. Mm. Uh, and I just love... Like, the, one of the reasons I want to have... Talk, I have this segment. I just love to see how different people think differently about the same subject. Yeah. So for you, like Matrix, when you think about it, like I, I as a stunt performer or as a performer in general, I like the certain things like Neo uh, running on the wall, doing the backflip and doing all this kind of crazy stuff. Uh, what are the things that you were attracted for Matrix? It's the whole blend of the story, mm. the idea of the story, the, this idea that you're living out your life in this virtual reality and you don't know. I just think it raises some interesting philosophical points. Yeah. The idea of life as a prison and, uh, and so on. And then the discovery of real life when you, you know, some some moment sh- causes the scales to drop from your eyes and you realise where you are. Um, the s- quality of the stunts, um, the style of it. But for me, it's a lot of it, of course, it's bound to say this, it's the philosophical basis of the thing. Mm-hmm. The idea that you're living out your life in this uh, reality that you're not aware of, that's all around you. And of course, it's so stylishly done. Mm-hmm. I love that scene, the fight scene, where Neo's fighting Morpheus and everybody comes to see what's going on. It's yeah, just yeah. that's the one where he ran on a wall. That's right, he runs like up the wall, yeah, and then, but then it doesn't do him any good because he gets kicked no. in the chest when he lands. Yeah. But 
yeah, it's um, it's very very stylish. It's very very clever. Um, I'm a software engineer, so you know it appeals to the software engineer in me, like the architect. Mm, 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 I wish mm. I could repeat the architect's uh, script. I should mm. learn that. The architect. There was uh, the, who was that uh, key master in charge of keys and I stuff. I love the key master. Oh, sorry, I love the key master. <laughs> the motorcycle stunts as well in the diff in the later versions. The motorcycle yeah. stunts are amazing. I've got to try this too. I just want everybody to know. It's great, yeah. Mark. Just just saying. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, Matrix. The whole the whole series of Matrix films just amazing. And also, what's oh, what's her name? The near, the Merovingian's wife. Merovingian's wife. What? The woman who wears the outfits in the nightclub. You can put it up on the screen for everybody. They'll remember once they've seen her. Are you talking about the one Neo was in love with? No, not Trinity. Uh, the one, the, the Merovingians, the character who owns the nightclub, and everybody wears na late na latex in the nightclub. Oh. This is a Tory. This is a Tory boy moment. I'm giving away my attraction to the Merovingian's wife here. Okay, I will find it and I will just put it on. Yeah, so we don't everybody, will, everyone will understand. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, no Matrix. Uh, yeah. Oh, the other thing I want to ask you: Did you straight away came up with these revelations and about the, that you were mesmerized by this idea, or that came with the second and third time when you watched it? Because like very often people watch they mm. they. In the beginning, they're just taken away by the, all the stunts and coolness, and just so different. The red pill, green pill, blue pill. Or yeah. Whatever. So I, yeah, the red, the red pill, blue, <laughs> the red pill, blue pill thing uh, is really meaningful because I studied economics, and suddenly I, I, I thought, why, oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? Mm, 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 mm. Um, but I don't think I got the full depth of the movie the first time I watched it. I think the first time I watched it was just an experience, mm. and you know you didn't see it coming how it would how the reveal would happen as he's lifted out of the matrix so um, but it's hard i've watched it so many times now it's hard to remember what it was like the first time but i didn't i think the appreciation of the film uh, grew over time mm. yeah because in the beginning for me i like again there was language per year i think we watched the dubbed version it was in russian and uh, i was just the you know i was you know, very young, and uh, in the sense, like I didn't understand what's going on, but I just like the, the coolness of. The of stuff course, that they were because doing. I'm so very old. Hey, you so said it. I yeah, didn't say it. yeah, I didn't yeah, say yeah, that. yeah. Are I'm you So that's Matrix. Then we have Constantine. I love Constantine. And Constantine, obviously, Keanu Reeves is there. So, <laughs> and I love Keanu Reeves movies. I don't know why. It's this messiah complex that he seems yeah, to and, have, always and, saving the world. And John Wick, yeah. So those are the three films. And the John Wick films are so cool. I am still waiting for someone, Renaz, to describe me as the John Wick of British politics. John Wick of British politics. That's what I want to be, the John Wick of British politics. Oh, okay. Turn in. Okay. Do a bit of gun. You need to do some shooting. Have you done any shooting? In the Air Force, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, of course you did any shooting. So I've shot loads, loads of rifles um, in historic order. For the, three, the Enfield 303, we had some of those old World, World War II rifles when mm -hmm. I was an air cadet. Uh, the FN SLR, which was the staple armed forces rifle in the, um, in the UK um, when I was a kid. That's amazing, amazing rifle because it's very, very powerful. Seven point six two. Then the SA eighty, which was the current, is the current uh, standard UK Armed Forces rifle. Mm -hmm. I had a, had a, a fired a few shots in the desert with a fifty caliber bolt action rifle, oh which was God. great. Yeah, it was so funny. It was with an SAS and SBS trooper who were taking the piss out of me. They told me you you won't fire more than one or two rounds from it. So of course I fired all the rounds they let. How me was out. your shoulder? It was fine. The, the, 
I mean, with these uh, powerful rifles, you just want to hold on to them properly. Mm-hmm. The Lee Enfield is probably the most dangerous because it's got a brass plate. So people, if they're cowering afraid of it and hold it off their shoulder, yeah, yeah, it'll really the come back. No, you don't want to do that. But the 50 cal had a flash suppressor on the front that oh, fired okay. the gas backwards, and that took some of the kick out of it. But it was like firing an artillery piece. It was insanely powerful. Yeah, it was yeah, great. Yeah. But that was shooting uh, concrete bombs on the range in Oman uh, with these guys. They were there to test the ammunition. Mm-hmm. I was there to fix the jets. Um, and I, I, I fired loads of different Martini Action 2.2s and a semi-automatic 2.2. And I went up to the range recently to discuss what was called a lever release. And they had a something 45 ACP and 9 mil. So, so you know, quite I fired yeah, quite a lot of rifles, but not... Um, uh, lots of rifles, but not handguns. I've never had the opportunity to fire a handgun. Wow. See, like in Latvia, it's so much easier to get your hands on the real guns and actually just go to yeah. the raging uh, shoot. Uh, what's it called? Them gun range, shooting range. Yeah, and and do some like I I was like teenager. I was do using Makarov, uh, uh, AK forty seven, AK forty seven was just like oh, AK Kalashnikov, whatever. Of course, yeah. Some, My wife fired one. She was in the armed forces as well. She had a trip to Poland where she fired one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have very distinctive sound. I understand. Uh, po- in Poland? No, no, the AK-47 has a dif- very distinctive sound when it's oh, fired. Okay. Eh, never really kind of thought Real about popping. it. Yeah. yeah. But I think, uh, yeah, Poland is actually, some. a lot of stun guys go there, have amazing courses for, like, tactical use of guns, and it's just they're insane. Actually, one of the stun guys just recently posted how what they did, like, two years ago, and they want to go back to it. Yeah. They have the whole scenarios with cars driving in, like, stopping, you smash the window out, you shoot inside. It's just, like, yeah. insane. Yeah, but yeah. with proper real bullets, not, like, just... Airsofts or something, but in the UK it's so difficult to find any. People place have like really that. borne down on firearms. I mean, we've had terrible, tragic um, murders like Dunblane, and uh, there was also the one in uh, Wiltshire, Hungerford, uh, where uh, you know guys just just manifested pure evil. I mean, ch- shooting children in, but Dunblane's oh, absolutely terrible massacres. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, like, and that's why a certain way you want to talk about America and how messed up things are there, they, and then it's just this thing about well let's just take all the guns out you can't it's too late to yeah. take all the guns out but you know i remember bowling for columbine the film by michael moore wasn't it so after the columbine massacre you're too young to remember but there was a there was a massacre at a school and this uh, a democrat leaning uh, uh, filmmaker did a movie about U- u.s gun culture and then went up to Canada, and he made the point you made earlier about how nice Canadians are. Mm-mm. And um, access to firearms is very easy in Canada as it is in the US relative to the UK. Yeah. But the Canada doesn't have the record of murders. Yeah. And you, so you have to ask, what is going on culturally with the US? Culturally, like, I think the biggest one is this whole thing about antidepressants and uh, the, the, the pills, what they take, and then how people are just struggling with their uh, mental health and things mm. like that. I think that that is the main issue. That's how we got to start talking about John Wick, and this is where we went. Yeah, of course, the, <laughs> the fantasy of these things is uh, entertaining as a movie, but yeah. of course, in real life, real people get hurt, and it's not at all funny. Okay, talking about John Wick, which uh, which film you like the most? The first one, because it's the, the novelty of it all. Yeah, um, the, the novelty of it all and the character development again, the, the way that Keanu Reeves is this reformed character who loves his wife. And the dog. And the dog. <laughs> and the dog. <laughs> and the, and just, the, you know, he's this kind of anti-hero, but um, that he's just, there is just some shit he's not putting up mm-hmm. with. And there's the reputational thing that people don't want, you know, I hear that John Wick's coming. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, do you uh, know who he is? He once killed a man with the pencil. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do that very well. Yeah, yeah. Do and you know who's John Wick? Yeah. Baba Yiga. I quite like that reputational thing, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's what I'm kind of, you know. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty the, cool. Yeah. On the third one, I really like then. Uh, did you see the third one? I think in the third one, when he uh, met that lady, she was uh, she was in Bond, I think. Oh, was, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. What's I, can't her name? Rem- I can't remember the lady who was a Bond girl. Yeah, um, yeah. But she's amazing. Yeah, so she basically, I like her dogs when her dogs were like flying and attacking. Yeah. That was insane. Like, I thought that was one of the coolest ones. When, oh, like, partly because of the stunt work. Yeah, you've yeah, actually yeah. got to work with the dogs doing that. Yeah, that's huge. That was I really mean, cool. You really need well-trained dogs, don't you? Because, mm, I mean, like, in that film, they did uh, use the animal uh, factory so well. They used the horse as well. So he just smacks on the butt, and the horse kicks the baddie in the face. But I remember, yeah. But it messed it up because it did it twice. And I was like, come on, you can't use it twice. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. And, uh, but the dog thing, I loved it. I just remember how this baddie is, like, extending his arm, and the dog just flies and just grabs and just, like, in this massive speed. And people forget dogs are really dangerous right i mean i went to a police dog handling uh, uh, venue and got to know these dogs and you, you don't want to get on the wrong side of these dogs i mean they rip they can rip muscles out right yeah they're uh, well trained and they know what they're doing yeah it's interesting like i, I when i was a kid in the countryside I, I always had dogs like i loved bigger dogs and just going like they're so intelligent so like can sense you um, okay, so that's the um, that's the um, John Wick, Constantine, John Wick. and um, Matrix. Yeah, and the common theme is Keanu Reeves movies. Whoop, whoop. Well, what uh, about Constantine? Yeah, he, he's a oh, Constantine. Yeah, yeah. I love the spiritual element in it. It's kind of scary, but I rewatched it just recently, and I was actually very impressed by those old special effects, and they still work, and it lo- looks still pretty cool. It does, yeah, and they are old special effects yeah. by modern time. Gosh, yeah, and I liked the also film the ninety eight, ninety nine. The character is like the devil, like how he's this, and that that angel lady who was actually yeah an ass, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then she ended up losing her wings and stuff. Yeah, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's just I love the the uh, that interaction with these different characters, and then Constantine himself, he's dying from cancer and all yeah. that, and and his cynicism about religion. It's not, and there's no faith. He knows it's all true. Yeah. And he lives out this in this world where he knows it's all true and he's got to somehow cope with it and he knows he's condemned and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it's the way that he's escaped all these doubts. I mean, we talked about religion earlier. We, everybody's got these doubts and these um, and the contradictions and, you know, why would we bother with faith? Does it mean anything and all the rest of it? Whereas for Constantine, he's beyond all that. Mm-mm. He knows the thing he's dealing with is just true. Mm-mm. Like you would if you were going to the shops or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so it, there's this huge cynicism about him as he deals with it all, and this resignation to dealing with these spiritual matters. And I don't know. I like, oh, quite not like again. that. Not <laughs> again. Not again. Not another exorcism. Oh. <laughs> nice. Now Keanu Reeves, like that's one of the actors I never worked with because uh, mainly he shoots all his films in states. Right. As far as I know, I, I don't know that he's been shooting anything in the UK. Right. As far as I know. But I haven't done huge research, so don't take my word for it. Um, and yeah, and like in John Wick, um, I, it's funny that I know some of the stunt performers from States, and you can recognize, oh, that's this guy, this guy. Yeah. Um, one one of the things what you kind of get a little bit bored of, was it in second Keanu Reeves or, um, uh, or in the third? Um, John Wick, sorry. And uh, he used a lot of BJJ moves, like taking down people, like just taking down the grabbing leg and just like the, so repetitive. It felt like you want a yeah. different dynamic for mm-hmm. for that. Um, but other than that, like he's just a legend. Like he has, as far as I understand, he has a purple belt in BJJ, which is a huge achievement. What's BJJ? Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Brazilian yeah, Jiu-Jitsu. Which, like, yeah, yeah. So I have seen, I, 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 there was a guy... 
a master in the art of BJJ came and was uh, running a session for a judo club in Wickham, which I attended, and it was insane just how good he was yeah, yeah. and just what small manoeuvres he could do to people. It was like magic, yeah. how little he could do to completely immobilise someone. Yeah, so you've done judo? Is that what you yeah, know? I did some judo when I was a kid and some karate, but I've never represented my nation or anything. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was yeah. always very minor stuff, but I did a bit of judo and a bit of karate. But Yeah, so I did uh, judo was for me was like very fast kind of fast track because I need to get my qualification yeah but I really enjoyed it all of it and uh, I remember coming on a on a BJJ class and it's like well I've done judo yeah and and some white belt just squeezed the crap out of me and that's when you're like what just happened yeah um and yeah I have so much respect to BJJ but in the same time I I, I trained more and I got my knee injured very quick and it's so easy to get injuries Mm -hmm. but it's not because of the sport it's because of the our ego like my i can't like kind of tap out i'm just gonna Uh, fight uh, further and that's where you get hurt how's your tea oh it's interesting (laughs) it's very smoky (laughs) here you go so that's movies it's very large and it says the boss on it so i've got to enjoy it that's movies and here are the books yep so the first book miss misses is that the writer omnipotent Government, the Mises, rise, Mises, Mises, omnipotent government, the rise of the total state and total war. I love that book. I couldn't find it on uh, on my audiobook thingy. You, well, I'm not surprised you couldn't find the audiobook, yeah. but uh, it is available as a free PDF online. So Ludwig von Mises was uh, a guy of Jewish descent mm-hmm. in Austria, and he was an amazing economist really based on he called it methodological individualism, but thinking like we were talking earlier about. Starting with individuals and their choices and their actions. What is Mm -hmm. it that people choose to do? And how do you systematically think about that to come up with a system of thought about economics? So Mises forecast the collapse of the Deutschmark and the rise of political radicalism in Germany. Mm -hmm. An amazing um, book, really good stuff. It's in a a collection of essays called... um, uh, Causes of the Economic Crisis and Other Essays Before and After the Great Depression. So he forecasts the rise of political radicalism following the collapse of the Deutschmark. And then he has to, as a Jewish guy, has to then flee the Nazis first to Switzerland and then to the USA. And he write, in, in this book, he explains how omnipotent government uh, arose and what the, what the factors were in it. And it's just an amazing lesson about how politics goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, militarism, nationalism, belief in socialism and planning. And it's a really serious book. And there are people out there who cannot tell the difference, I am shocked to say, between classical liberalism, the belief in freedom as an organising uh, principle, and and, and, uh, and those who follow totalitarianism. And it's a real antidote to that. No one could read that book and not understand um, the difference between the philosophy of freedom and its alternatives, and also how relatively easily society can tip into totalitarianism mm-hmm. if people do believe in the state as the answer to every problem likewise the road to serfdom um hayek hayek was a student of mises so hayek was a socialist mm-hmm. people don't realize that but he read mises book socialism and economic and sociological analysis and as a result became a free market liberal and people hate that. I think that's why the left so hate Hayek, because he gave up on socialism, became one of the best intellectual defenders of freedom. And the road to serfdom, he broke off from his economic work to s- explain that in the UK, we were following a similar pattern of events to Germany, but 30 years behind, writing this at the end of the Second World War. And he was very worried about it. Now, clearly he wasn't right. 
the UK did not tip into totalitarianism. Um, so his fundamental fears were wrong. But it's likewise an examination of power when it goes wrong. And I see so many lower-grade echoes of it today. So Road to Serfdom has a chapter about planning and democracy. So if you have a planned society, a lot of economic interventionism, you get so many rules and regulations that Parliament can't scrutinise them. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely true today. And I'm part of a project with the Hansard Society about trying to change that. But the fundamental point is, if officials are going to be telling people how to organise, for example, the production of energy, we shouldn't be surprised when it goes wrong, and we shouldn't be surprised that parliamentarians who are there to scrutinise the law can't keep up with all the rules. And that's all forecast in Road to Serfdom. And Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies. Oh, I love Karl Popper. That's the only book I actually got on Start Listening, and I couldn't... Yeah, so it grasps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Karl Popper, it was, and and he was a Marxist when he started out as a young man, Mm -hmm. and he went to a riot, and a friend was killed, and um, he said to the organisers that this had happened, and he was obviously very distraught. Yeah, and um, they said, well, you you know, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. They were completely unsympathetic to the human condition and concern for others. So Popper started asking a question, well, is socialism scientific after all? Which is what they were saying. It's scientific socialism, and the coming of it is inevitable, and so on. And that's what caused Karl Popper to become one of the greatest philosophers of science, because he was asking the question, what is science? And some of the things he says are so relevant today. So science proceeds by conjecture and refutation, in other words, trial and error. Trial and error, yeah. Yeah, in other words, scientists can be wrong. It can still be science and wrong, and then it gets refuted and you move on. So conjecture and refutation. But you look at what we went through with the COVID crisis. You look at the way the conversation goes around climate change. You would think that scientists never made a mistake. But one of the things Karl Popper teaches us is that actually science proceeds by conjecture and refutation, Mm. by trial and error. And what... um, Uh, the Open Society and its enemies does is trace the history of totalitarianism back to Plato. So it's a very much, it's a very highbrow really because it's about a row between different philosophers about how you interpret Plato and Marx and Hegel. Uh, But I love it because it shows that the history of excessive authoritarianism is very, very, very old. So the book finishes, or somewhere in the book, might be the close of the first book, I forget. But it's a line something like this. I see now more clearly than ever before that even our greatest troubles spring from something as admirable as it is dangerous, Mm. from our desire to better the lot of our fellows. And this is such an important lesson for me as a politician and for for the public as well. Just because a politician wants to make your life better doesn't mean it's right to put them in power and give them control of the law. It's like the oldest mistake in the book, this temptation that they'll fix my life if only I give them more power over me. Whoa, 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 whoa. How about fixing your own life? Yeah. How about improving ourselves first and our relationships with other people and not expecting someone else to set up a bureaucracy to tell us how to do it? But when society's really tipped into barbarism, I think it's fair to say it's really industrial-scale barbarism always arises from people being willing to expand the use of power in society. Mm. But you see, like, in this case, when when government is saying, you guys need to do this now, and then society, whoa, 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 we don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, when is it almost, like, too late, then society can say, well, we don't want to do this. When they actually still can have that. It's like, 
again, like I just don't, don't understand so much about politics. Like right now, what you were saying, this most of the stuff for me was like, oh, sorry, I'll have no, to no, try no. again. No, no, no. In a sense that it is, it is quite complex, and also someone who's done been in politics for such a long period of time, and also I wanted to commend you on the uh, on your um, uh, being in charge of the book club, which is amazing. Yeah, it's th- the young people love it. Yeah, which you. I think is fantastic. How you know what people? Uh, I can judge you uh, by knowing. It's not judge you, but I can kind of understand what kind of person you are if I know your five best friends. But it's like show me your five best books or if your favorite books, and I yeah. can kind of figure out what kind of person you are. Yeah, and also like knowing, understanding what is your opinion, what you learn from that book. So I, th- I think book reading is just so important for us to craft and mold our personality and yeah. our ideas. Yeah, and uh, and unfortunately, because of today's quick scrolling and and this, bu- you know, yeah. d- no um, patience to sit two seconds to do anything. Yeah, people just so f- move away from reading books. And it's and part it's of this sort of postmodern mindset, but. You know, ideas are, have been around for a very long time and we're too arrogant if we think we can neglect ideas. I mean, it's mm. Oscar Wilde or somebody said, oh, oh, an original idea? Yes, the library's full of them, something mm. like that. The library is full of original and brilliant ideas by people going back thousands of years and we're fools if we neglect what's gone before mm. us. But in the end, politics, it boils down to something very simple. Politics is about power. It's about how power is used in our relationships with other people. And if you want more of that or less of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the end, that's what politics boils down to. There's lots of complexities and lots of talk about different, you know, areas of public policy like education and healthcare and how it's provided or Taiwan or whatever. But in the end, it's about power. And fundamentally, the point about Brexit was power for me. Power needs to be kept under democratic control. That's the safest way we can moderate power is to remove people when they're unsatisfactory because mm. Popper talked a lot about that the purpose of democracy is not really to allow everybody to share in policy making lovely as that dream is it's not actually a practical proposition mm. There's what po- what democracy is really about is about saying you know Renaz I've had enough of you in power now I'm mm. going to remove you by voting for somebody else you see, one of the biggest problems with, uh, again, that, that's these are ideas what Joe Rogan discusses on his podcast, is that if the nation is so, so big, it's just so difficult to figure out or, and like just look up to one person or the, this group of people who are in charge. Yeah. So if we would look back in the days when we lived in tribes, let's say like it was 30 of us, if one of us is not doing the job or like not contributing to the rest of the society, the rest of the tribe, we're going to go, hey, 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 buddy, you should do the work like everyone else yeah, does. Yeah. But so when the, the nation is so huge, it's yeah. just so difficult to monetize and understand who, where this money goes, how this goes, who is in charge. And as bigger as it goes, like instead, 300 million people and one person is in charge which is insane well obviously it's just not one person but it's a very limited amount but everybody's of looking up to him in yeah. a sense. And, but this is again it's like the cathedral versus the bazaar the two ways of organising society the very hierarchical oh, this dream of perfection mm. or the, the madness of the bazaar with everybody's cooperating freely and some people are just instinctively drawn to the apparent order of the cathedral and they don't like the apparent chaos of the bazaar. But one of these two ways of organising society produces prosperity and freedom and happiness, joy, mm-hmm. fulfilment. And one of them, whenever it's seriously tried, always produces tyranny and misery and failure. And this is the choice society always favours. Again, I want to decentralise power. I don't want to be looking to one person. I don't want to have to care who the Prime Minister is or care who the President is. I don't want it to be relevant in my life. Now, people wouldn't expect me to say that as a politician, but that is my politics. Mm. I don't want the public to have to care about politics. I want to get politics out of their lives. But the irony is the best way to get politics out of people's lives is to have a well-informed population who have that view 
and then they get involved with politics and say to politicians, uh-uh, no, thanks. I don't want that from you. Mm. I want to pick this other guy who's willing to get elected who wants to reduce the role of politics in my life. But I'm afraid that's it's a choice. We, we're stuck with politics, power, legislation, courts. We These things are going to be there forever and they do a lot mm. of good. But the question is, how do you stop them going too far? I'm afraid the only answer, the only way, we are just stuck in life, mm. that the only way to stop politicians going too far is to participate in democracy. And for those of us who would like less politics in our lives, it's iron, ironic. How is it in UK, let's say, like, if they elect the, the parliament, how long do they have the power? Five years is the limit. Five years. Yeah, right. we've just repealed the Fixed Term Parliament Act, but um, five years is the limit. So one of the biggest things what I noticed in Latvia what was happening, so th- we ha- we would have these parties, right? And we have, like, let's say, five main parties, and they're fighting for the seats in the same, as we call the seats in the parliament. Yeah. It's very similar. And, um, and let's say they come up with all these promises, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. As soon as they get elected... That's all out of window. Yeah, it's hopeless. But so what is the... Because, again, like, let's say yeah. if this is a small small tribe, small village, it's 30 of us. Yeah. Uh, Steve comes up and says, listen, guys, if uh, you allow me to be in charge, um, I'm going to make sure that kids going to get food, uh, elderly going to get this. Yeah, da, 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 by da, telling you what to do. Fishermen <laughs> going to do this or this. Yeah. And then li- literally half a year later, you've done none of it, and then opposite. If yeah. we're a little tribe, we're just going to slay you right on the stop or just kick you out of the tribe, you know, yeah. we're going to come yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. But when these people, they get this power and they're there, you can't just get rid of them in one year. No. So what is, th- that is my biggest problem. Yeah. Because so they can lie looking in your eyes saying like, oh, we're going to do this and that's going to happen and it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, th- this is one of the biggest problems. People become accomplished liars. I mean, I won't have lying. You've got to have. So I always say when, when everything we say and we write in my team, it's got to be true, necessary, beneficial, rightly motivated and with permission. Mm-hmm. Permission is the only thing that's hard. Sometimes you've got to attack somebody and you don't you don't ask their permission first. But true, necessary, beneficial, rightly motivated. And a lot of politicians don't do that. And I've seen it myself over 12 years. Once somebody lies a little bit, they become better and better at lying and they get mm, themselves in mm, these webs mm. of deceit and you can't trust them. But the best thing to do with such people is remove them from public life, which you can only do illegally by voting. So, yeah, politics is inherently mucky. You know, they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But, yeah, power is corrupting. The worst of people's vanities and ambitions come out. And in order to strive after their ambition, they'll then say and do things they ought not to do. So it is a mucky old business. But, um, as I say, we're, we're, we're stuck with it. We've got to, got to have some mechanism of controlling power in this mm. world. And democracy is the best one. When you, come, when you go for an election, you should have a manifesto that sets out, as you say, what you're going to do. Yeah. And then you should stick to those promises. And don't mm-hmm. make promises you can't keep. Now, I would prefer that our manifestos were shorter and more thematic and more about principles because making large numbers of very concrete promises just inevitably makes them hard to keep, particularly when events crop mm-hmm. up. And then you get the problem of cynicism and despair when you've broken promises. So I would rather that we were much more thematic and made fewer promises that we can much more certainly keep. Mm-hmm. But the choice in politics, really, it's, we've ended up that we pretend that everybody believes the same. But we don't. The socialists and people like me believe fundamentally in different organising principles for society. I want a free, cooperative society based on voluntary interactions between mm. free people with dignity and virtue. And I believe that's the best way to get prosperity. But the socialists, in the end, they want the state to control everything and direct it one way or another. 
And these are two profoundly different directions of travel. But what's happening in politics is we keep pretending we're on the centre ground. Why? Because we're fighting over the swing voters. Mm. This is the irony. We haven't really got to fight for the free market voters because they're already voting for us. We've got to fight for the marginal voters who aren't very interested. This, again, is one of the joys and curses of democracy. All the politicians are fighting for the same swing voters. And so we all end up looking the same and promising a bit more. Mm -hmm. But actually, the greatest antidote to that problem of making promises we can't keep and all looking the same is an informed electorate. Because if the electorate was to actually inform themselves about what has and hasn't worked in the past, and it's always freedom that works, and it's always... It's always socialism that fails. I mean, there's lack of virtue in people, and that can lead to problems. But when you're talking about really systematic, grand failure, it really takes bad politics and bad politicians and bad institutions to cause grand systematic failure. So I, I think an informed electorate changing the centre ground of where politics is to say, we don't want omnipotent government. Mm. We don't want politicians and bureaucrats in our lives all the time. We want to have the dignity of choosing to do the right thing for ourselves. All the conversations we've been talking about, about choosing to treat others as you'd like to be treated and caring about people equally without regard to gender or sexuality or the colour of their skin. Mm. You know, that's where I think most people are. They don't want to be troubled with all these hatreds and prejudices. Yeah. And so a, a, free, a free society of, of decent, civilised people, well, people with a culture of honouring one another, that, that would be a society worth having, wouldn't it? Does that sound utopian? Maybe a little bit? <laughs> yeah, but you know what? The, the society is what we make it, right? Yeah. You and I go skydiving. Come back to skydiving. Our skydiving rigs are sold to us or loaned to us without any warranty for fitness for use for any particular purpose. That's what it says in the manual for my, my parachute rig. Mm. But it works. And, I, and the warning label on it says there is a risk that this parachute will, not, will malfunction even when correctly used, assembled and so on. But I still use it. Why? Because I trust them. Mm. And I can trust them because they're in the business of saving my life for that parachute rig. And, they, and it works. But I don't need the state to guarantee that it's going to work. I don't need the state to regulate the design and manufacture of those parachutes. Well, don't, don't doubt there'll be some. But um, I just trust mm. that my Sabre 2 parachute will open, will open smoothly and will get me to the ground. And, you know, even on a life and death situation like that, we... We are capable as, as humanity of cooperating systematically and virtuously and making the world a better place. But the point for me is it's our choice. Mm. And all the time we cast our cares on somebody else, we're failing. But all the time we decide we're going to come together as individuals and make a better future for ourselves, then we've got a chance to succeed. Do you think there could be done something more about, uh, about accountability? So let's say if I'm, because I have a background in sales and marketing, right? Yeah. So if I have a meeting and I'm in charge of this district uh, where we're selling uh, potato chips, let's yeah. say, and I will say, listen, guys, we have a plan to uh, get our sales to this point. Uh, if, uh, and, and it's very simple. If we don't, you can fire me kind of thing, right? Yeah. So I give the, they give me half a year, year, and I get those, uh, those numbers. And every meeting we go every, every month, they were like, so what, the numbers are not there yet. They're not there yet. Yeah. You know that we're going to fire you if you're not going to get there. Yeah. And so, like, okay, didn't get there, fired, next. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in politics, the biggest problem is that yeah. it's like you promise, 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 promise. You get that seat, you sit in that seat, and then not delivering the promises. Yeah. 
and then the uh, the, uh, the 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 people are all upset, annoyed, whatever. And then we're gonna have next one now. Next one is promising, promising, promising. Getting there, not delivering, and sitting there for four or five years, uh, spending our uh, um, tax money on the yeah. salaries and all that stuff. That's my biggest problem that you can't have them so accountable. Yeah. And if you do want to get rid of them, it takes this long ass pro- process. We need to get these votes. Yeah, yeah, we need yeah, to yeah. this. We need mm-hmm. this. That is the biggest issue with politics, in my opinion. That's why you well, know I can honestly say that that I never been involved in politics because I agree with you. That. So I agree with you. And there's loads of ways that politicians are held to account in Parliament and in committees and all this stuff. It's all too boring and not very effective. But there's basically, there are fundamentally two different ways of organising society. The private citizen's way and the political way, mm-hmm. the state's way. And what you've just described is that fundamental conflict. That in the private sector, if you talked about tribes earlier, it's a similar example. In a small organisation that people have chosen to be part of, accountability is very easy to deliver because you can say, oh, you, didn't, you didn't hit your sales targets, Renage, you said fire me if I don't, so you're fired. Whereas with the state, it ends up you get the rule of no one. No one's held adequately to account. But ministers have got entire departments where they don't know everything that's going on in their department. People have got their own, although they're supposed to be objective and impartial, officials have, of course, got their own ideas about how things should be done. And accountability is extremely difficult to deliver. Well, what are you going to do? Either you keep trying to make a failing system work or you have a different system. And that's Mm. why I'm in favour of the system of a free society. Mm. Because if we just get the state to do a lot less, except that it's never going to work, and that no amount of trying to hold people accountable is, is going to work in, if you give the state those responsibilities. And so, therefore, we take those responsibilities away from the state and give them to a free people who can hold one another to account in all seriousness and make, make things work better. Of course, where, it go, where that argument goes wrong is the people who lack virtue or do the wrong stuff mm-hmm. and let everybody else down. We talked about firearms. That would be the classic. It ought to be possible for a competent adult to own a firearm without there being a problem. But, of course, we discover that that is not the case. So, so for you, in being in tw- 12 years in politics, yeah. Um, so when did, did you have those moments when you just feel like, instead of moving forward, we're going backwards? Yeah, of course, all the time, most days. How do you get enough power and enthusiasm to get up and continue doing it? I don't know. Sometimes I don't. But I do. Con- <laughs> um, <laughs> just don't turn you know, up. <laughs> yeah, but it's partly because I've got this ferocious determination that we're going to do better than this. And the thing is, that if I wasn't doing it, it's back to that emigrate mono stand. I got involved in politics because I thought politics was in such a terrible state. Mm. And if I left politics, someone, from my point of view, worse would do it. Now, there's a lot of politicians yeah. think that. They always think they're the one to do it. But I, I want a politician who's willing to come on a podcast and talk about the need to get the state to do less. That the, the state breaks its promises inevitably because it makes promises it can't keep it the broad system of politicians and the state make promises which can't be kept, not honestly, in order to gain power, and then the cycle of failure is entrenched. And I, I want a politician who's willing to come and say that on the record. Yeah, yeah, because we've got to inspire people that this system we've got is is it's it's just categorically the wrong way to organise mm. society. But again, it's back to why the left really hate Jordan Peterson because he tells people to start with improving themselves. Yeah. And that's hard. Everybody's in crisis. Everybody's got their pr- troubles to deal with. Not everybody's in crisis. Not all the time. Everybody has their crises. They everybody have their moments. They all. Life. Everybody yeah. has their moments, right? Yeah. They all have their moments. They all have their difficulties. Everybody's struggling with something. But we should 
start with ourselves yeah. and improve and ex- embrace that life is struggle and involves suffering and improve ourselves and not try to find a utopia where we've trusted politicians to make everything right for us. It's never going to work. So um, I suppose I get my drive to keep doing it by my belief that if I didn't do it, um, somebody I mm. was less happy with would do it instead. But I'd be honest, doing it the way I do it is quite hard because mm. there's a lot of people out there who would like me to be telling them that vote for me and I'll, yeah. I'll make your life okay. Well, I, I can't tell them that. It's not true. I think this is like uh, the way I look at certain things, what we're passionate about. Uh, I call it, uh, I read in one of these super wise books, it's called the core. So yeah. when you have that strong core, which is like the belief in what you do is the right thing to do. Uh, let's say like with podcast, my example, you know, start doing it, did like 20, 20 episodes, had like 10 followers, t- subscribers. Because uh, in the very beginning, I had uh, an, uh, I had a co-host. Uh, he's one of the comedian guys in, in uh, uh, Bali. He's actually in charge. He's the manager. Yeah. And after 10, uh, 10 episodes, he's like, I'm not doing this. It's like, there's no money. There's nothing like, you know. And I look at him. How? Wh- why would you even think about money? This is us getting together, getting these ideas out. This is such a, and it's such a complex process. You can't yeah. just go and like be super famous and, and everyone is going to be listening to you. There's a lot of hard work to it. But in the same time, that's an, like, for me, it's incredible enjoyment of what I'm doing. Yeah. So even if like right now you're telling me, Renaris, right now you have 130 whatever subscribers, but like next year it's probably going to be 130 still. Will you still do it? No doubt. Even yeah. if it's going to get less, I'm going to still do it. Because... I'm, I'm getting so much stuff out of it. And even if one or two people are going to hear this and they're going to thought, oh, wow, actually, maybe politics is this. Or maybe, like, skydiving is this. Yeah. Or maybe bikes is this. So, you know, that is the thing what drives me still doing it. And then I can sense that you're like, yeah, it's t- two steps backwards, but I don't care because I just... It's got to be done. It's, it's be like done. a duty yeah. to do it. But, yeah, I mean, the theme through a lot of this stuff is what does it mean to be a capable, competent individual you could be proud of? Now, we mm. all fall short. I don't doubt my flaws. We all fall short and then we have to pick ourselves up and do better again. But we should all be trying as individuals to grow and become more, whatever that means. But to understand the choices that we make, it takes responsibility for those choices and to try and become more. So I think the reason that I like doing what I do in politics, of going after the big questions and the big ideas, the reason I like skydiving, the reason I like motorcycling, it's because it's right on the edge of what's hard and possible. Mm -mm -mm. uh, That's sailing those fast catamarans and... Brexit, uh, they've all got the same edginess to them. This could go terribly, terribly badly wrong. Mm-mm. But because we understand what we're doing, because we've taken proper care to prepare, because we understand what we're trying to achieve, we can do this dangerous, high-risk thing and succeed. And I find enormous satisfaction in doing the big, dangerous, high-risk things and succeeding. That's, to me, that is that's the pinnacle of fulfilment. Yay! And I can totally agree to that. Like c- certain things, what I do, um, it's just if there's no no adrenaline rush and there's no kind of a cool stuff about it, I don't, I'm not even b- bothered about it. When someone says, "Oh, let's go for a walk," the most boring thing ever. Like we can still enjoy ourselves. Let's get on a bike. Let's get you know fly somewhere and do something. It's like we yeah. still can do fun. So no, that's crazy. Well. then you're not in my world. Uh, okay, we talked a lot about books and we went to really good. You know, area there. Um, three people. 
Yeah, I can't remember what I told you. I don't think you actually told me about three people. You just gave me books and films. Did I? Yeah, I think so. But like, just just give me quickly what like, one person or two people um, who you well, think because uh, when I mean by people, it's like someone who you would take that if you had as a mentor in your life, mm-hmm. or someone you're just looking up to and you think like that is like Jordan Peterson or whatever. Well, it's a total life. total cliche, but as a Christian, I've got to say Jesus. I okay. mean, it'd be crazy if I didn't say that. My, if th- if Jesus really lived, which I think he did, yep. and if he really was who he said he was then he's the most important figure in history bar none. And all the cliches and all the rest of it, and your, your viewers watching this are going, oh, he didn't really say Jesus. But it's, actually, if, if it's true, if yeah. the gospel is true, then he's the most important figure ever by huge margins. Um, but I would probably say after that, um, um, somebody like Mises, because he's such a brilliant thinker, mm-hmm. so wide-ranging. And uh, the other third person I'd add, probably, it's, I'd be hard-pressed, but probably Beyonce. Beyonce? Oh, I've got a, spe- I've got a license. It, it literally goes, Beyonce, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> but my wife has given me a license, soft, soft spot for Beyonce. I'm All a right. huge Beyonce fan. She's, she's amazing. Oh, no. but, but wait, the, the ring thingy? <laughs> Yeah, 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 but there's there's no adultery in it. She's just amazing. And <laughs> no, 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 no. Put the yeah, yeah. All the single ladies. All the single ladies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do that. <laughs> we should do the dance like that guy on the football field. But yeah, I've got a licensed soft spot for Beyonce. So um, and why? Tell me. She's gorgeous and amazing and talented. And um, yeah. Well, she inspires so many, so many people all over the I'm world. I'm serious. I've yeah. always thought that Beyonce was a really incredible woman and performer, and uh, yeah, I've got a licensed soft spot for Beyonce. Oh, that's cool. And following shortly be- uh, behind is probably J Lo, mm. and beyond that, I probably. What do you think go. about J Lo just uh, marrying uh, Ben Affleck? Did she marry? Do you know if I was asking for somebody to play me in the movie, I've always thought it would be Ben Affleck. Uh, Don't yeah. you think? I mean, Ben Affleck's got a bit fat recently. Yeah, he so would, it couldn't be you. It couldn't be. But him. I've, Ben Affleck in the accountant. If you'd if we'd asked me for five films, I probably would have included. Did you just fat shame Ben Affleck? Did I? Oh no! <laughs> Did I? Oh no! That's going to be the highlight. <laughs> that's going to be the. I uh, just accidentally fat shamed oh, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck has uh, just got a little bit of fat. He can't play me. Sorry, but you fat shamed me. Uh, you did. I yeah. I was actually wanted to say that like fat shaming works. Um, usually, like how how did it work for me? The the two out of three usually two get in shape, one gets suicide. Oh, oh no! Did I said that? So cool. We gotta um, be kind to everybody. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Um, no, yeah. So she uh, she got married to Ben Affleck. Yeah. Any thoughts? Good luck to them. Hey. Yeah. Happy. I'll, and happy, talking happy about marriage. who could? Did you see the accountant where Ben Ben Affleck was? I playing love the account. accountant. That great. film is sick. Really is like that it. a good thing? That's a generational thing. Sick, 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 sick is great. Good. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Fabulous. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, um, I enjoyed The Accountant. Yeah. Again, it's this sort of uh, quiet, introverted, geeky mm. guy who suddenly does these uh, terrific things. So, um, And I really thought that he kind of digged into this kind of a deeper himself and like he played something different because he always like tries to play these outgoing like the boiler room where he was like yeah. I remember I actually learned that um, that monologue when he gives in a boiler room uh, when he's like um, uh, this is what you need to do in order to get successful and you're not you can get the fuck out of here kind of thing uh-huh. uh, and it felt like it was played and pushed but in accountant it literally felt like he kind of plays plays yeah, himself yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really cool no, i like the accountant ben affleck yeah ben affleck if you're watching i'd love for you to play me in the movie 
and uh, there's absolutely no problem with your physique. You're, yeah, only you're looking you great. You're looking great. I'm a huge fan. Ben, thanks very much. Yeah, the only thing you need to do is just get in shape, please. <laughs> <Stop> <laughs> yeah, but uh, who's going to play you in the movie, Renaz? Um, I don't Renaz. know. People keep saying that I look a little bit like, um, uh, what's it called, Wahlberg. You do Mark look a Wahlberg, bit like Wahlberg, yeah. yeah. The nostrils, I just need to do the nostrils all you're the a time. Bit, you're a bit more muscular than... I don't know, but I'm, I'm his height. Like, I could actually stun double him. Yeah. Uh, but there's this other guy who's been stun doubling him for ages, and he's a better performer than me, and anyway, so it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> like, I can okay. get over it. I could double uh, John, uh, Tom Cruise, but he's uh, not as big. Like, he's quite uh, yeah. like, narrow shoulders and stuff. Is he really? But he's my height. Exactly my height. Huh. So. Can you run like Tom Cruise? Pro- no one can run like Tom Cruise. No. <laughs> it's crazy. He's got a crazy run. I've just got one really big, important uh, question uh, to ask you before we finish. Yeah, go for Are it. Are there any of those buttons you haven't pressed in this interview that you need to uh, press? Let's see. So we- That's a little music thingy, so we can yep. do that in the end. <laughs> oh, you didn't say anything funny, so I didn't use this I didn't say anything <laughs> funny. <laughs> Uh, go. We again. used this one a lot. We did. We used this one the most. Yeah. Because you are the guest. No, we did. Uh, That's got a good we one. Used, we used this one. We used this one, and this one we didn't never use. We should have used that when talking about the wonders of a free society. Here you go. Imagine. Hang on. Yeah. Renaz, imagine how wonderful a free society could be. One based on dignity and choice and virtue. <laughs> you should come to my next hustings. We should have you. You should sit at the back with this machine next time we have a political hustings. And you could just read the reactions. I, pro- I probably would do this the most. No. <laughs> Hopefully for my opponents. But we'd see. But yeah, that would be quite funny. You could actually have quite a good um, political commentary on the next general election by just Easy. doing doing these over over the top of Hustings. I need videos. to do the one boo as well. Boo. I need that one. Boo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're too polite to do boo. <laughs> so before we uh, finish this amazing uh, experience, um, I usually ask them. I call them the the bombs of wisdom. Ooh. What would be the the bomb of wisdom um, for maybe a younger version of you? So if you look back and you could say to meet Stephen when he's like 20 years old, 15 years old, mm. or just in general for maybe younger people who might also look into politics, yeah, uh, what would be kind of suggestions? What do you like? To well, give? I suppose if I was talking to the younger me, I would say don't let anybody else constrain your choices. Mm-hmm. Don't let anybody else tell you that you're not good enough or allow you to think that you're not good enough. I think when I was a kid, I didn't think I was good enough for X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And that constrained my choices. Yeah. But just don't let anybody tell you that. You don't, don't don't allow to yourself to believe in that as yeah. well or think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is you want to do, you Just are do good it. enough. Go for it. Don't. I mean, there's a lot of entitled people in this world. Mm. Um, you know, again, I, I don't want to be a reverse snob over it because I want everybody, everybody without exception, to be able to fulfil their potential. But there's a lot of people out there who feel entitled to mm. their success. Yeah, they really are feel entitled to their success. They turn up and something goes well for them. And they feel entitled. But then I'll meet somebody else. I've got someone in mind. I won't embarrass them by saying somebody else. And you give that person a hand up and they're almost, almost embarrassed they've been helped. Mm. But it's only making a contact that will be of use to them, you know, to both parties. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with introducing people to one another who will find one another interesting mm-hmm. and useful and helpful to their mutual advantage. That's the way life goes. But somehow working class people get brought up thinking there's something somehow wrong with networking mm. like that. Whereas... 
entitled posh kids take it for granted that that's how the world works. And, you know, I would say in a world full of entitled people, just allow yourself to be helped. Mm. Allow yourself to be helped and allow yourself to believe that nothing's too good for you. I think that was a perfect ending to a perfect podcast. Great man. It's been a real privilege to come on with this podcast with you. You are a great hero and an inspiration to me. Steve Baker. Steve Baker. Little dance. There you go. There you go. There you go. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Bruno's Podcast.